Paul de Chaillou was born on the French colonial island of Reunion in July 1831 to a French trader father and a local African mother. Eventually, his father relocated Paul to the other side of Africa, where he was educated by missionaries in Gabon. That was the extent of de Chaillou's education. But from that foundation of learning and from his time living on the delta of the Ayongu River, he developed a passionate interest in natural history and the people of the region, so much so that after he emigrated to the United States as an adult, he convinced the Academy of Natural Sciences in Philadelphia to sponsor him in a years-long expedition into the wilds of West Africa. One of the things Paul de Chaillou learned while living among the natives of Gabon and from his guides while exploring the Ayongu was that a species of human-like animals roamed the lowland jungles. Europeans had brought fragmentary bones of these animals back, but debate raged as to what they represented. Deshayu knew that they were living creatures. He knew that they were powerfully built, covered in dark hair, and that the people of the region feared them. And he knew where and how to find them. It was his intention, the bastard son of an itinerant trader without any formal education to speak of and barely any resources to his name, to prove to the world the existence of what we now call the Western Lowland Gorilla. And Paul Deshayu did just that. After four years in the jungles, he emerged with complete specimens of an animal many refused to believe existed. In doing so, he challenged common perceptions of man's place in the natural world. This untrained, uneducated French-American made a discovery that rewrote natural history books. Eventually, Deshayu collected, identified, and described to science dozens of West African species, birds, amphibians, and mammals. He also established the existence of the pygmy people of West Africa. Paul de Chaillou was a citizen scientist, someone untrained with no formal scientific education, but who nonetheless follows their passion for knowledge and discovery and helps advance scientific understanding of our world and the universe, sometimes in small ways, but sometimes in big ways. Citizen scientists help the USGS record and measure earthquakes. They count bird populations on Christmas Day. They decode Civil War telegrams and count Antarctic seals on satellite imagery. They track weather phenomena around the world and compile an atlas of bee populations in Minnesota. Citizen scientists observe. They record. They are and have always been the backbone of science. And they are and have always been those who fill out the member roles of the North American Wood Ape Conservancy. I'm Brian Brown. On this episode of our podcast, you'll meet citizen scientists. You'll hear about their work and come to appreciate their commitment to our cause the cause of discovery, the cause of conservation. We seek nothing more than what Paul Deshayu sought more than 160 years ago, to upend our understanding of natural history and our place within it. This is the official podcast of the North American Wood Ape Conservancy. This is Apes Among Us. Welcome to another episode of Apes Among Us. I'm Matt Pruitt, joined by my co-host Brandon Lentz. How are you doing there tonight, Brandon? I'm fantastic, Matt. Thank you for asking. Excellent. I'm really excited for people to hear this episode. We've put a lot of work into collecting the insights and inputs of people in the organization and a few outside of this organization into the topic of citizen scientists. And I think a lot of our listeners who are themselves researchers of this particular topic will find a lot of these things insightful and relatable and useful. 
I also hope that folks take a listen to this episode and be inspired to go out and collect data and observe. You don't necessarily need to have a PhD in biology to collect data and present it to science, which is exactly what the NAWAC does. Citizen science is defined as the collection and analysis of data relating to the natural world by members of the general public. Now, in a broader sense, very often that happens in collaboration or cooperation with professionals, whether that is academics or uh, professional scientists, et cetera. But it's not just wood ape research wherein that occurs. Uh, Astronomy, for example, has been a field that has uh, long been contributed to by amateurs, especially even into modern times. Yeah, just as early as January of this year, NASA put out data for the Kepler telescope for citizen scientists to pour through because they just didn't have the time. And within the first few days of them releasing that to the public, citizen scientists actually discovered a brand new exoplanet that is two and a half times larger than the Earth. I don't buy it. I don't believe it. My friends on the skeptic forum say it can't be real. (laughs) That's incredible. And that's, you know, very inspiring for people like us. I mean, myself, I'm not an academic, but I'm very much interested in being a part of something and contributing to something that is such a huge discovery. You know, there was a member of ours, uh, Jordan Horseman, who gave a really inspiring talk at the first member retreat that I went to. And he made a really brilliant point. And he had said, You know, despite whatever you might be involved with in your personal or professional life, discovering the wood ape is probably the most important thing you will ever be involved in. And that meant a lot to me because I think it's true. So I can only imagine how the people that uh, took part in the discovery of that exoplanet might feel about that. I've been involved with the NAWAC now for five years. And in those five years, the chase for the discovery of the wood ape has dramatically reshaped my life to the point now where I'm actually attending college because I was inspired by the people involved with the NAWAC and inspired by just wildlife biology in general. So being a citizen scientist has actually inspired me to try to become more of a scientist in an academic sense. Well, I definitely commend you for taking that on. That's that's awesome. Good for you, for sure. You know, it's interesting, too. A lot of the people that we kind of revere and admire it related to this field were not themselves academics initially. Like Jane Goodall is a good example. You know, she was working as a secretary when she initially uh, went to Gombe in 1960 and began the observational field study of chimpanzees. And it was only later that she received her PhD and it was actually issued to her by a university that did not require her to first have a bachelor's degree. So I suspect that we'll all get our honorary doctorates in wood apery one of these days. But, you know, Diane Fossey is another great example of someone of that nature. She had a, a bachelor's degree, but it was in occupational therapy. And she was working as an occupational therapist when she began her observational field studies of gorillas. And interestingly, uh, Louis Leakey had reached out to her about one particular criteria, an assertion, he said, that he he made mandatory that people should have their appendixes removed before venturing into the remote territory of the mountain gorilla just to avoid potential hazards. So Diane Fossey had her appendix removed. Shortly thereafter, Dr. Leakey told her that there's really no dire need for that. It's just my way of testing applicants' determination. So luckily, no one's asked me to remove any vital or non-vital organs with this organization yet. (laughs) There's still time, Matt. Give it time. 
Fortunately for us, the NAWAC has no shortage of members that have very impressive academic backgrounds, and one of those is longtime NAWAC member and the executive producer of this podcast, Daryl Collier. So let's bring him on. How are you doing there tonight, Daryl? Gentlemen, it's good to be here with you. Excellent. And I know the listeners have heard your voice in multiple episodes thus far, but as it pertains to this particular aspect of the pursuit, can you tell the listeners a bit about yourself and your academic background and pursuits? Well, as you said, my uh, my background is in is in history. I have a bachelor's degree in that. I'm currently pursuing uh, graduate studies at Sam Houston State University uh, in history, and so that is uh, history is one of my great passions, um, one of my great loves. In fact, I spend a good deal of my uh, spare time uh, listening to lectures and and just gobbling up everything I can that has to do with with history. So I'm not all just about you know, wood apes and that sort of thing. <laughs> uh, love history as much as anything else. Do they let you wear the camo and the face paint in the history classes? <laughs> uh, well, I don't know that. I don't know that I would want to try that, but uh, probably probably wouldn't wouldn't have a problem with it as long as I, you know, was able to contribute. <laughs> Indeed. Well, I've learned a great deal from just discussions with you in camp there and on the phone. I think you have a pretty a pretty stellar grasp of a lot of not just American history, but world history in general. And so I'm sure that the history of citizen science itself is something that you might have looked into, especially uh, with the efforts of this group hinging upon that so much. Well, I, you know, when when we first discussed this, the first thing that popped in my mind, and, you know, it was, you know, I was thinking in 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 terms of history, it was a great American. In fact, he's my he's actually my favorite president, and that's Thomas Jefferson. Uh, a lot of people don't really know that, that Jefferson, as well known for his contributions to science and particularly paleontology, uh, as he is uh, to to politics and government. John Kennedy was entertaining a group of Nobel laureates. And uh, when he was in the room with them all gathered together, he he uh, you know he remarked that uh, this was probably uh, the greatest gathering of intellect in the White House since Thomas Jefferson had dined there alone. <laughs> so uh, wow. so President Kennedy knew he knew well uh, about Jefferson's reputation, um, and uh, Jefferson was uh, he was known during his lifetime for being a man of science, and you know we don't think of that. A lot of times because we, you know, we have the Declaration of Independence, of which he was the primary author, but he was a fine mathematician. He was an astronomer. He was known uh, as an expert in anatomy, civil engineering, physics, mechanics, meteorology, architecture, botany. Uh, Jefferson was conversant in Greek, Latin, French, Spanish, and Italian. <laughs> he was recognized as a pioneer in geography, anthropology, and like I said, paleontology. In fact, some people refer to him as the father of American paleontology. Daryl, what do you think that Thomas Jefferson would have thought about the NAWAC's efforts to bring the wood ape into the light of the world? Uh, that's that's a good question, Brandon. Um, it's an interesting question because you know I have to I have to say I I, I think I know Mr. Jefferson pretty well. I'm a, a pretty diligent student of his. And I have to say that he was always, Jefferson was always looking to new discoveries. He was very interested in new theories. He was always interested in things that would challenge the status quo. Um, he had a very open uh, and very receptive frame of mind. He always looked forward to new discoveries, new, new scientific speculation. In fact, when he sent 
Lewis and Clark West to explore North America. He had every hope. He actually believed that they would find living mastodons. So I've, I've got to think that um, I think he would be rooting for us in a major way. That's amazing. And a bit of history I absolutely was not aware of prior to that. So thank you for that. Yeah, it's brilliant. Jefferson's a cool dude, man. Well, I'm definitely very confident that this group will accomplish its mission. And so what I would like to see in the future are students like yourself studying about the NAWAC and reading your name in those history books as well. So we greatly appreciate you being here and greatly appreciate your contributions to this group. Well, it's my pleasure, Matthew. Thank you. Well, Brandon, let's get right into this episode. I think our listeners are really going to enjoy it. You're going to be hearing us speak with various members of the NAWC about their backgrounds and their experiences and how that informs their actions as citizen scientists. And Brandon, you also had a discussion with a wildlife professional outside of our organization who's interested in our data collection. Can you tell us a little bit about what to expect there? In September of 2018, you and I, Matt, were in Area X, and we actually heard this together. We heard a series of sustained moaning howls that we were actually able to capture on one of our autonomous recording units. And I took that file from the autonomous recording unit, and I sent it around to different wolf biologists around the continent. And the data that we collected actually came back as being well within the vocal range of red wolves. So I interviewed Kim Wheeler, the executive director of the Red Wolf Coalition out of North Carolina, who has vast experience with red wolves, about the history of the red wolf and about those files as well. You know, Brandon, you reaching out to Kim and taking the time and energy to send those files is exactly what citizen science is about. You know, it's not exactly directly related to what we're looking for, but you know that there are probably professionals and scientists out there who might be looking for something that we have. And you are also willing to get the opinion of a qualified individual to weigh in on this. So that's conducting citizen science kind of at its best, which I think this group is very good at doing in terms of sharing and disseminating data. For sure. And I don't consider our organization just a conservation group for wood apes. I always look at the Watchtown Mountain ecoregion as the entire biome. So if we are able to prove the existence of the wood ape and thereby giving it protection status, we are also protecting everything that lives in that region, including the possible red wolves that we may have recorded. That's a perfect way to sum up the overall mission of this particular group and the conservation portion of the group's focus. And so now our listeners are going to hear a bit from a number of different members of the NAWAC who are contributing to that very cause. Our next guest today is Mike Mays. Mike is a board member of the North American Wood Ape Conservancy, is a professional educator, a blogger at texascryptidhunter.blogspot.com, and an author. How are you doing there today, Mike? I'm doing great, Matt. How are you? I'm very good. Thanks so much for being here. I think the listeners would benefit a lot from hearing about uh, your background in terms of you know your professional background, your education, and your interest in cryptozoology and specifically in wood apes. So can you tell us a bit about that? Sure. Uh, as far as what I do for a living, I've been a teacher and a coach for 20-plus years. Um, coached everything from football to golf. About all I have not coached is uh, soccer and swimming. That's, I think those are the only two I haven't uh, been involved with at some point or another. I'm a teacher of history, 
taught American history and currently teaching Texas history in a middle school here in uh, Colleen ISD. Uh, grew up in southeast Texas, which um, falls into that piney woods region of Texas, uh, heavily forested, lots of creeks and rivers, and all the all the main rivers of Texas seem to kind of taper down, get closer together down as they empty into the, the Gulf of Mexico there. So grew up with a lot of stories about what might be running around out in the woods, uh, in particular the Big Thicket National Preserve, which was real close to where I grew up. So you mentioned hearing kind of colloquial stories there in your area about some strange things running around in the woods. Was that the first introduction that there might be undiscovered animals in these parts of uh, North America? Possibly. Uh, You know, I was pretty young, so I'd have a hard time putting a finger on the exact moment uh, when I realized there might be something undiscovered running around in the woods close to me. We had heard stories of the wild man. That was typically what we heard about, you know, running around in the big thicket. Um, around the Saratoga area, Village Creek, places like that. The term Bigfoot, Sasquatch, things like that, th- those weren't used uh, in the mid to late 70s when I was kind of getting interested in this. It was a while before I kind of put together in my own mind that what the locals were talking about running around in our woods might be the same animal that they were talking about might exist up in the Pacific Northwest Uh, So when I put that together, you know, kind of light bulb went off and, you know, I was hooked pretty well from then on. And at what point did that interest kind of shift from kind of casual observing and reading about it into getting involved and pursuing the things in the field yourself? Well, I I was pretty deep into life, so to speak. I was um, in my mid 30s. Um, The interest had never gone away. I continued to read. And uh, as the Internet became a a big thing uh, it became accessible to to all of us i uh, started to dig around on the internet and what a disappointment that was uh, <laughs> a lot of that stuff out there was really you know just silliness as far as i was concerned that kind of turned me off a little bit and uh, it was uh, actually i was a member of an outdoors group a christian outdoors group and i went to hear a speaker talk on Bigfoot in Texas, and it was our own Daryl Collier who was giving the uh, the talk. And uh, I talked to him after the presentation. Uh, again, you know, my interest had never gone away, but he was really the first one to seem halfway sane in my mind uh, uh, that talked about the topic. And, um, you know, it really was drew me toward the group. I did not join right then, but uh, that really encouraged me that there really were some people out there taking this seriously and looking into it. I can definitely empathize with being turned off at the amount of blatant nonsense that exists online in relationship to these animals. I can imagine that there were elements of Daryl's talk that allowed you to see that there are people who are approaching this from the standpoint of citizen scientists, people who are trying to apply known scientific disciplines and methods in order to bring closure or a conclusion to this particular mystery. And so did that inspiration eventually lead you into joining the group and becoming a part of those field efforts? Uh, yes and no. It, it inspired me, and, and there was a friend with me at that at the meeting where we heard Daryl speak, who was also interested, and we decided, you know, we would, you know, go look around a little on our own. We had, uh, thanks to Daryl, we now knew the group site website, and and then, you know, there was a map of sightings, and we we saw that there were uh, sightings in. Um, 
Montgomery County and Walker County and, you know, not too far away from us, you know, this was really encouraging to us as, you know, we didn't have the time or the, or the means necessarily to go back and forth to Washington and Oregon and places like that. So we decided to go look around for ourselves and, um, oh, we probably had gone out on, you know, two, three day camping trips four or five times when, um, we had, a, we actually had a visual, you know, and, and it was, you know, it was pretty amazing. And we talked to each other about it and we're like, no one's going to believe us. Um, we're rank amateurs, beginners. No one is going to believe us. There have been people that have looked for these things for their entire lifetime and never seen one. And no one's going to believe this. So we sat on it, uh, for months and that happened in um, May of 2005. I think it was October before finally I kind of worked my nerve up and uh, I told my buddy that, hey, I'm going to I'm going to go ahead and just report this to the group. And, and so I did. And Daryl's one who followed up with me about it. And uh, he did believe me. So that really kind of made me feel better. And at that point, that's when we decided to go to a meeting and uh, we joined in December of 2005. It's fascinating that you did have a visual encounter and visual confirmation, visual contact with one of these animals early on, because a big part of what the NAWAC is doing in this context of operating as citizen scientists is trying to answer this fundamental question, do these animals exist? I think for a lot of people, there's this dividing line that they either don't exist, which means that they're the product of wishful thinking and misidentification and outright fabrication or some sociocultural phenomenon. And then on the other side of that dividing line is this possibility that they are real flesh and blood corporeal animals that have a, a distinct lineage and potentially connected to fossil animals. So in your experience, is it difficult to operate in a way that is trying to answer that question scientifically to the satisfaction of the greater scientific community or let's say governmental or academic institutions when you've already had this kind of personal confirmation of the answer to that fundamental question? At times it is. It certainly is. Um, early on, I did realize that my having seen something is not proof to anyone else. Uh, and when I started, that's all I was trying to do was just prove it to myself. I'd, I, we'd actually had a talk, my friend and I, uh, that if we ever just found a, a, a big footprint out in the middle of nowhere where nobody would be out walking barefoot, that'd be enough proof for us. We would, we would then know, and that would be enough. But after it happened, um, you know, I just, I was just so intrigued. And, uh, so that's how I got into to this with the NAWAC. And my, my buddy, he's, he's satisfied. He, he has his own personal knowledge and he's, happy with that. And, um, I wanted to do more and it is a challenge. Uh, and it, as technology has just taken leaps forward, uh, you know, even things like video or, fo or photographs are not going to serve as proof. Um, so it is a challenge. It is frustrating, but you, you know, you, you persevere and, but, but there is a constant internal struggle because you do have an internal bias to some degree because you've seen one, you know, I know they're there and it can be frustrating because you know, the guy you're with knows, but the, the people with the power to protect habitat, to list the species on the endangered species list, those people don't know, they haven't seen. So it is a constant struggle to try to get someone to listen to you and to open their eyes. It, it, it is a struggle. 
to your point, if you want to prove it to yourself, you're probably going to have the most fun with this subject because at that point you can set the bar as high or as low as you like. I always tell people, you know, if you want to prove it to other people, well, now you've got a much bigger challenge and it's not going to be as fun. It's going to be a lot more arduous. And then beyond that, if you're trying to prove it to the world, and again, those scientific, academic, and governmental institutions, well, now you've got a massive challenge because you have to play by their rules. And science has laid out the rules for us very clearly over the last 60 plus years. And so I think it's very commendable to be willing to answer that question to the satisfaction of those outsiders rather than just being content with having already answered it for yourself. Right. You know, it depends on what your goal is. Like you said, if it's just personal knowledge, I think you could have a lot of fun doing this. Uh, and there are a lot of people doing that, and, and that's perfectly fine. Um, you know, I want to do more. I want to contribute to the knowledge base that we have on these animals. Um, I, I want them to be protected. And, and you're right. You have to know what the rules are, and you have to play by those rules. And we just have to keep trying. Um, we're not going to get what we need by watching cable television shows about the subject. So that's the challenge. It's hard. It's, it's unpleasant. It's uncomfortable. It's either you know, boiling hot or freezing cold or you know, it's, mosquitoes are eating you alive. Um, you're, you're traipsing through knee-high water sometimes you're in, in swampy marshy areas or you're uh, trying to climb mountains and you know, snake-infested creeks. And I mean, it's just it's, it's, it's difficult. And that's just something not everybody wants to do. And I, I, I get that. But uh, it, that's what makes it such a challenge. Being a professional educator and obviously having gone through uh, the academic process, do you find that there are aspects of your education and training and profession that kind of inform your actions as a citizen scientist within the context of this particular group? With any discipline, it wouldn't necessarily have to be education, so to speak. But with any discipline, there there are just times um, when you just got to put your head down and 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 plow through it. You know, it, it's not necessarily pleasant or easy at the moment. But certainly the process of trying to get through to young people can be very discouraging at times when they're not interested in what happened 200 years ago. Uh, the challenge is making it relevant somehow to them today. And it's easy to get discouraged when it doesn't seem like you're making any progress in that regard, but you keep plugging away. And every now and then you get just a nugget where some kid will say, oh, Okay, I get it. It's like this. And and it's clear to you the light bulb went off in their mind and they did get it and they do understand. And those are those are good moments. And I think that somewhat correlates. I mean, we go and I've always said that that doing this type of research is, you know, it's ninety nine percent boredom, basically. I mean, nothing's going on most of the time, at least as far as you know. Uh, and then there's one percent of just craziness terror sometimes, you know, uh, and just just the adrenaline rush is amazing when something does take place. But uh, you plug away, you plug away, and that satisfaction you get, you know, when you, you, you experiment, you try and fail, you adjust, you try, you fail, you adjust. And then when you get something, that, that's, that's what the process is all about. And uh, that's, that's pretty exciting stuff when that happens. 
So given your expertise and your experience, not only in this group, but in other aspects of cryptozoology, I know you've authored a couple of books and you maintain a regularly updated blog on the topic. And I understand that you get a lot of speaking engagements and a lot of requests for that public outreach. So I'd love to hear a bit about what you see in the general public from multiple age groups in terms of their interest to this subject and their interest to the 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 kind of work that the NAWAC is doing. I think what helps the most is for them to see someone who speaks passionately on the subject, who is, is trying to use scientific protocols and who is serious about it. I went and spoke to a group of um, Bell County master naturalists about a year ago. It was right after I had, um, I had published uh, a book on the Black Panther phenomenon. And that's, that's actually what the topic was as opposed to the wood ape uh, subject. But you could feel the skepticism in the room uh, when I came in. People were cordial. They were civil. But you can almost feel like, oh, this is, you know, we must be scraping the bottom of the barrel for speakers or topics if this is what we're talking about at our monthly meeting. But by the time it was over, there were a dozen people who were in line to come talk to me. And you could just feel the shift in the room, the, the, the climate, so to speak, as I talk, because they realize, okay, he's not crazy. He's actually got some stuff here to back up what he's saying. I had, they're citizen scientists. Master naturalists are citizen scientists. You know, their goals are different than ours. But they could see that while my, my subject area was different, I was one of them. And I was trying to do things the way they do things. You know, I got done talking and it was another 90 minutes before I got out of the room because people, everybody knew somebody that had seen one of these big black cats and they all wanted to tell those stories. And almost without exception, all of them said, you know, I, I haven't told anybody about this, but, and then they would tell me their stories. You mentioned that you had written a book on the topic of uh, unidentified large cats. Can you tell us a little bit about that? All over East Texas, where I grew up, you can't throw a rock in a room with 20 people and not hit somebody who's seen one or knows somebody who's seen one. Uh, Alton Higgins and I have talked about this and, and just chuckled because every now and then he'll send me an email about, hey, I was just talking to so-and-so and the next thing you know, he's talking about how they saw a black panther and, and it's, you know, it occurs much more often than, than the wood ape talk does. Uh, and when I started the blog, the intention was to, to talk about the whole Sasquatch wood ape phenomenon more than anything else. But uh, I published a, a post about Black Panthers and my email box just exploded. It just it was unbelievable. And just hundreds and hundreds of people sent me their accounts and stories. And, you know, I, I couldn't keep up and I saved them all. It just kept going. Uh, every time I would publish a post that talked about some of their their accounts, it just triggered another avalanche of, of emails. And, and, and so after a few years of this, I thought, you know, I, I should do something with this. To my knowledge, no one else had, had done a, a book length project on, on the phenomenon. And so that was the genesis of, of the idea of writing the book. It's called Shadow Cats, the Black Panthers of North America. It, it mainly focuses on Texas and the American South, but we talk about accounts as far west as the Bay Area in California, as far north as Ontario, and as far east as the Carolinas and in Georgia and Florida. And it's just, it's, it's across the country. Uh, it's, you know, it's really amazing. And, and no doubt there's a lot of mistaken identity and things like that. Um, but 
But there are some of these accounts that are just really fascinating, including some accounts that our own Dr. Angelo Caparella collected when he was a younger man out in North Carolina, where he talked to wildlife officers. I think they're basically the equivalent of a game warden here in Texas about you know sightings that they had. And so I took the most credible ones, charted them, see if there's any pattern to where these things are being seen. What might these things be? And uh, talked to a lot of people, uh, wildlife, big cat experts. We go into the history of sightings and all the way up to um, contemporary accounts. And so it was really a lot of fun for me to do. It turned out to be a much more difficult thing to do than I thought. Um, But I think it came out pretty good, and uh, I'm pleased with it. It was a labor. It was much more difficult. I don't think people realize how much goes into actually writing a book. Mike, I can't thank you enough for appearing in this particular episode and talking with me today. Thank you so much for everything that you do for the NAWAC and for the subject in general. Listeners, please check out texascryptidhunter.blogspot.com or search for Shadow Cats in Amazon or other online book retailers. Mike, thank you so very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. Well, it was my pleasure as well. I appreciate it. Thank you. Welcome our guest at this time, calling in from somewhere in the woods in Oklahoma, NAWAC investigator Jody Blaylock. It is a pleasure to have you here, Jody. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you very much. I'm excited to talk to you. Yeah, this phone call is great, and I'm excited about it because you and I have never actually talked before, so this is a great chance for you and I to get to know each other. I'm super curious about your background and the path that you took that led to us here having a conversation about wood apes on a podcast. So what do you do for a day job, Jody? if you don't mind me asking? I am an architect. I started, I was in the Army. I was military police officer in the Army. And um, I've also, I lived in Arizona for eight years. I was a EMT with search and rescue. One thing I, I really enjoyed about, I've always liked being outside and I've always liked scary things. You know, I think just being in search and rescue, it was awesome getting to hike outside, usually at night, because a lot of our calls came in later in the day. And I thought, you know, when I moved back to Oklahoma, okay, it's, it doesn't get any better than that. And then to put together being out at night, hiking in the woods, I mean, it's just, I don't know, to me, it's just like, it doesn't get better than this. <laughs> So you have become architect by day, wood ape hunter by night. <laughs> yeah, that would be all. I wish I could do it every night, but. Yeah, we all do. So how did you first become interested in the outdoors? Well, I pretty much grew up outdoors. Um, I was raised out in western Oklahoma. We had a wheat and cattle ranch. Actually, still have the same ranch in our family. So I've just always been outside. Our family went camping and hiking every summer in Colorado. And my dad, I grew up with horses and my dad would take me hunting when he would go hunting. That was one of his big passions. So I've just, I guess, always just been an outdoorsy kind of person and try to spend more time outside than inside, honestly. Yeah, it was the same way with me too growing up. I had kind of the same background in that my dad took me hunting and we had family property that I grew up on. And that led to me just always wanted to be outside, wanting to be in the woods, hoping to find whatever kind of animal that I possibly could. 
what uh, what kind of game were you hunting? Uh, mostly quail. My parents actually bet in Alaska, and my dad used to hunt you know, bear and mountain goat, and he, he would go on annual deer and elk hunts. But with him, you know, we usually would hunt like quail, dove, and pheasant. Game birds? Yeah, just just out on our farm usually or other friends' farms. So are you still on that same farm now? I don't live there. Um, it's a couple hours from where I live, but I, I still help manage the farm. I imagine that led you having some sort of interesting experiences being out there in Oklahoma in the woods. Yeah, our farm's actually out in western Oklahoma, so it's pretty open where we are, just in a rolling hill. We're, our farm's getting up toward what they call red carpet country, so mostly open rolling prairie with some more heavily wooded areas along the creeks. But I'd actually, even out in western Oklahoma, I'd grown up hearing stories about, I guess, kind of mythical Native American-type creatures out there and have heard stories of what people normally call Bigfoot in that area as well, not just from Native American people, but from, you know, just white and other people also. So it was something I'd always heard about and just found it interesting, you know, later when you'd hear, when I got older and heard more stories and got more into the Bigfoot side of things, you know, it was just interesting to me that people from other places thought of Bigfoot as being kind of a Pacific Northwest dense forest type creature where I'd grown up in western Oklahoma where we don't have dense forests, but I'd grown up hearing stories out there. So I always thought that was pretty interesting. Do you remember what kind of stories that you heard growing up? I mean, it sounds like you had some quote-unquote Bigfoot things imprinted on you from somewhat of an early age. Yeah, I just actually, I'd heard one story from one of my cousins. She actually grew up in northern Idaho. Her dad, my uncle, was a forest ranger and she is a little bit older than me but she you know is a very wilderness savvy person I mean they always lived in really remote areas in northern Idaho and Montana and when she was pretty young she had been outside with a friend early one morning it had just snowed and they actually saw some tracks that they thought at first were some person walking barefoot in the snow and they'd started to follow them and realized it doesn't make sense. Why would a human, one, have feet that big? And why would anyone be out here in the snow? And so I, I knew that she wasn't making that story up. So that was something that really impacted me. And then local stories here in Oklahoma, I would just hear people say things. I mean, the more credible and, I guess, detailed stories that I've heard have been more recent you know, since I've moved back to Oklahoma and really have been interested in, you know, the whole Bigfoot wood ape thing and been talking to a lot of people. But um, I've heard a lot more very detailed encounters. But when I was little, it was more just, you know, I wasn't sure. I don't know if I really thought it was true or I just thought it was exciting and I wished it was true. But you'd hear stories about people seeing some ape thing, you know, messing around their property or hiding and peeking out from behind trees looking at them when they were out hunting. So just not necessarily Bigfoot specific, but just more like there's a boogeyman kind of thing out there. But looking back, I think they probably were, you know, just some credible accounts of something someone had actually seen. So were you able to actually go out and start looking for quote unquote 
Bigfoot activity or did you have to wait a while? When I was younger, it was, I don't think I really thought of it as being something real. I just mm-hmm. thought of it as more a fun story. And it wasn't until, you know, I'd um, done a number of different things in life and different career, you know, moves and had moved away from Oklahoma and moved back about, I guess, four years ago. And honestly, part of why I moved back was because I've been hearing more and more stories about people doing Bigfoot research in Oklahoma and just thought, you know, if there's something in my home state for real, I want to be a part of that. <laughs> like, I want to be in the middle of that. And so when I first moved back, I didn't, I didn't know there were Bigfoot groups. I didn't know those really existed. And so I ended up going to a festival that wasn't a very good festival. It was kind of silly, but I met a couple people there with common interests and a couple ladies in particular. And we went camping on several occasions, you know, just basically novices, just interested in the idea of Bigfoot, kind of excited, just want to go camping anyways. And that's when I actually had my first experiences that made me realize, you know, this could be real. What happened? We were camping, and the first thing that happened was I was walking with a friend, um, and we both had headlamps on, and we saw this rock come flying out of nowhere, and it landed right in front of us. And it, we both, I mean, it, it happened. It, we both heard it hit the ground. We could feel the impact on the ground. We both had headlamps on, so we saw it, and there was just absolutely no one in the direction where the rock came from, and it, it was just one of those things that was just almost mind-boggling, like, did that really just happen? I mean, I know it happened, and the person I was with, you know, experienced the same thing, and there was just absolutely no explanation for it. I was like, okay, I can't argue with that. I mean... I know it happened. I just, I can't explain it. I think at that point I was still like, you know, it could have been someone playing a joke on us. Other people could have been around. Maybe we just didn't know they were there. It was just so bizarre. That same camping trip, it was very early one morning and it was just before daybreak. I was asleep in the cabin and all of a sudden I was just wide awake. You know, I sat there for a minute, like wondering like what, okay, what woke me up? And then I started hearing these whooping sound. And it wasn't just like, like you hear the recordings of one single whoop. This was like, you know, seven or eight of them in a row. And I remember just sitting there like, I mean, just like mind boggling. (laughs) Just like, what on earth is that? And it was just like, you know, a hair on the back of your neck kind of cold chill feeling because I'm like, I don't know what that is. Like, I've been outside most of my life, and I've never heard anything like that. I have no clue what that thing is. And so I was I was freaked out, and I looked over at the other two ladies, and they were sound asleep. And I'm just thinking, how can anyone sleep through this? Like, this is incredible. <laughs> now I see why people miss recording things and taking pictures, because I was so engrossed in what I was hearing, it, it just didn't even occur to me that I should record it until it was over. And so I went outside and I didn't see anything. And we were, you know, the cabin was in a pretty large cleared area. And I realized whatever that was, because I heard it inside the cabin and it was pretty loud. I mean, I could tell it was coming from a distance, 
but it was a loud sound. And I realized, okay, whatever it was, it was it was pretty far away. I mean, probably at least 100 yards or more away. But it still was, it sounded, my impression was this was a large animal. And so I went outside, you know, just sat there for a while, didn't hear anything else, didn't see anything. And then I started thinking, okay, this is probably a joke. And I, there were some other people camping in other cabins, and I thought, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to figure out who did it. And so I kind of hid on the porch of our cabin, and I thought, I'm going to sit here and wait, and I'm going to catch whoever was doing that coming out of the woods. And I sat there until the sun started to come up, and eventually I saw every single person come out of their cabin. And again, I'm like, okay, <laughs> I don't know who else would have been out here and why anyone would come before dawn to play a joke on it. So when I went home, I kept thinking, maybe it was a bird. Maybe it was, I don't know, something I'm not familiar with. So I spent hours just going on the internet, trying to look for different birds from that area, different mammal sounds. And the only thing that it sounded like was, I finally found a recording of a gibbon. I mean, that was what I heard almost exactly. I think it takes a lot of guts, and I have to commend you for going outside and investigating it on your own. I think a lot of people would roll over and go back to sleep and maybe put the pillow over their heads and pretend that they didn't hear anything. Yeah, I think I was just like, I have to know what that was. Like, I can't identify it. So I imagine then that that curiosity about having to know what made that sound is what led you to the NAWAC? Um, actually, I still didn't even know that the NAWAC existed. I had, I think it was the next year, I actually ended up going to a Bigfoot festival. And I was not very impressed. I, I was very disgruntled. I was very disappointed in the festival because it seemed to be a lot of just kind of goofy ideas and paranormal type things. And so that was really my only interaction with, I guess, the Bigfoot world at that point. And I was pretty disappointed and just thought, okay, I think if my experience had stopped there, I'd be done with it and just think, okay, these guys are a bunch of kooks. I'm not going to have anything to do with this. I'll just chalk up the experiences I've had to some freak occurrence. So I was at this festival and I was getting ready to leave. And I thought, well, before I leave, I'll just grab lunch. So I got some food and I went outside on a porch area and sat down to eat. And I ended up sitting down next to Marvin Leeper and John Harrell. And so we started talking and they started telling me, okay, look, it's not always like this. <laughs> like There are other people, there are normal people who take you know, a very scientific approach to this. I think I was just hooked at that point. Like, okay, I want to know more about this. <laughs> I want to meet these people. I want to meet more of these people. And who, and who have really had experiences, you know, and have a scientific, realistic approach to what this is. And so that, that's how I found out about NAWAC. And I'm really glad because if I had not run into Marvin and John, I would probably just be done with it at that point. Going into Area X, what was your skepticism level at in regards to the existence of wood apes, and do you think that the habitat could support wood apes if you thought they existed? Area X was awesome. It was so exciting, and it was just, 
it was more than what I expected. I mean, it was just, I think just being there, I felt like I was in this famous place, you know, that I had heard about for so long. And um, we did quite a bit of hiking, which was awesome. At night, we would hear wood knocks and strange whistle sounds. So you just, you know something's there. And I think probably the most telling or the most exciting thing that we had happen, honestly, if I would have been alone, I wouldn't have paid much attention. Um, it was really early one morning, and Elton and I were the only two awake. We'd woken up because we kept hearing noises, and we heard like a wood knock, and so I knew something was out there. We just couldn't see it. And so the two of us had gotten up out of our tent, and we're just, we were, you know, looking with the thermals and just kind of being quiet and watching and listening. And after a while, we heard this huff. And I don't, I mean, it sounded, I just immediately thought, oh, it's a dog. And Alton said, that's what we're looking for. And I just, I started thinking, I mean, I think because you just, it's, you know, I've heard some of the, um, I think it was some of the podcasts saying, you, you automatically start trying to, identify what it is and if you can't identify it you just associate it with something that you do know so we heard this strange noise and I just thought oh it's a dog and it wasn't until Elton pointed it out that you know I started thinking no well we haven't seen any dogs here we haven't seen any tracks it didn't really sound like a dog it just sounded more like a dog than anything else it was like a deep low huff it sounded sure. like a really, really large dog, like a Mastiff or a Rottweiler or something, like a deep, deep, low huff. And it was just one sound, fairly loud, I mean, very distinct. And so that to me was just like, you know, it was just confirmation for me that there, there's something here and I don't know what it is. So I can't wait to go back. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Yeah, I think the only possibilities for that would be bear or wood. Yeah, I have a good friend of mine who's a primatologist. I asked her, do apes make sounds like that? And she said, yes, sometimes, you know, what she described and what I, you know, found some recordings on the Internet. I'm like, yep, that's what I heard. <laughs> Something very similar to that. So, I can't explain why I would have heard that in southeastern Oklahoma. Once you go into Area X and see, I mean, I've, I've camped quite a bit in southeastern Oklahoma. I'm familiar with that area. I thought where I had been before was densely vegetated. This was, I, I couldn't believe I was in Oklahoma, honestly. So just walking around those woods and just realizing even in the middle of the day, it was hard to keep visuals on you know the people you were hiking with you got separated a little and i mean we weren't even that far apart sometimes and you would just lose track of where they were and the way sound is kind of muffled there i mean it just it was shocking to me one as someone growing up in oklahoma that that i was still in oklahoma but i just thought you know there could be something you know very close to us just sitting there watching us and you wouldn't see it being out there and realizing how dense the vegetation is even at night like one night, I think it was a possum or something on the ground, and we could hear it and see it, you know, like put a light on it and see it and see it with a thermal, and then it would just disappear behind some really dense vegetation. And, I mean, it, it was pretty convincing for me. Like, there could be something pretty close. I can see how you wouldn't 
realize it. So I think as far as skepticism, I'm not a hundred percent, you know, like I, I believe that there is something there. I just, I think part of it for me now is I just want to see it for myself and know absolutely without a doubt that yes, this, this is here. You start to get that itch to go back to X not very long after you leave. I was looking forward to going back while I was still there. <laughs> I'm happy to hear that your first week there went well. Yeah, I can't wait to get back. I'm sitting next to a bubbling brook in one of the most picturesque and beautiful areas you probably will find anywhere around here. And that's kind of a funny thing to say, because honestly, around here, there's got to be I don't know, a thousand of these beautiful picturesque areas. But today I'm sitting with uh, a member of the NAWAC uh, that I'm going to interview. His name is Rich. Say hello, Rich. Hello. Uh, you may have noticed that Rich has a bit of an accent. Uh, we're here today to learn about Rich, uh, find out why he is interested in the subject, what his experiences have been that have led him here uh, to this valley in this group. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, Rich? Yeah, so um, I'm originally from Manchester in the north of England. I'm an army officer. Uh, I live now down near London. Um, I've been in the military since the early 80s, so that makes me a pretty much of a veteran. I joined as a private. I've been armoured infantry, a paratrooper, and now I'm serving as a staff officer as a major with a reserve unit um, near home. I, um, I bumped into a wood ape as such in um, 2011 in Alberta in Canada. I birdwatch as a hobby and I was out birdwatching early hours of the morning. I'd seen the target species, uh, switched to a scree slope in the hope of seeing a grizzly and a seven and a half feet, at least bipedal hairy creature walked out on the scree slope in front of me. Uh, from then on, my uh, world turned upside down. So the, the, when the thing walked out, what did you... What did you think when you saw this thing walk out on the scree slope? And about, about how far away was it from you? I reckon probably about 300, 400 meters. I was looking up the scree slope um, and this, this thing walked out. And initially I, I was told those scree slopes were really good for grizzly. So within seconds, almost seconds of um, setting up to look, this brown thing walked out and I thought, oh, grizzly. That was quick. Um, quickly realizing that it was on two legs and it was walking with a purpose across the scree slope. So um, I spent probably about 30 seconds on and off as it disappeared in the top of the trees looking at it. Getting particularly animated in, in the valley, it saw me and just dropped out of sight and never saw it again. And you're from Manchester, as you say, you're from the UK. Uh, how many times before this had you ever thought of uh, Bigfoot or wood apes? There was, um, there was a kids program on when I was um, a child called News, News Round. So it was news specifically, specifically for children. And they showed the PG film uh, as something that was a bit of a surprise. And this must have been in the 1970s, so a number of years afterwards. You look at, I, I looked at it and not convinced uh, and as I grew older uh, and got into natural history, I, I, it just slipped out of my mind. There was no way there was going to be an undocumented right. large ape wandering around North America without people you have wandering around the woods. Um, so it became a massive shock when I did actually see one. So when you saw it, did you immediately think that you recognized that as potentially a Bigfoot like the PG film? Or did you have to stew on that for a while? What was your process? No, there was, there was no doubt what I was looking at at that point. There was an ape. Uh, 
Um, I've got my notebook at home, which has got a list of boreal forest birds and then Sasquatch in, in, um, in capital letters with a number of exclamation marks at the side of it. I remember sitting and jumping in the car. Um, I'm led by food um, big time and I was hungry. It was, it was early in the morning. I wanted to go for breakfast and I, I was driving down the road. Um, mind all a blur. I can't remember much of that journey. And when I got to the cafe, ordered breakfast and a coffee, I just wanted to stand up and show I've just seen a Sasquatch. But of course, you don't do those sort of things. You do, but you then get thrown out of the restaurant. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so how long after that did you find our organization and how did you come across the NAWAC? Yeah, I'd been reaching out to a number of people and I, I discovered Twitter quite early. So I tweeted a couple of Canadians. Uh, they put me through to BFRO and I put my sighting in. And then I thought it was probably wise to contact a, a number of American organizations. I found NAWAC, contacted them, uh, and they were the only ones to reply. Really? Yeah. So, so BFRO just... No, I was interviewed by BFRO. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. But uh, but the only ones to reply after that, when I get, once I gained more interest, was NAWAC. Right. Right. How long have you been a member now? Good question. Five years? Wow, has it been that long? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So uh, we're down here in the valley that we call Area X. Uh, how many times have you been here so far? This is my third time now. So the first time two years ago was a long weekend, Friday till Monday. Mm -hmm. uh, expecting possibly one wood, wood, wood knock that weekend. Uh, I started ticking, up, uh, ticking off wood ape behavior pretty quickly after that. <laughs> Hoops, howls, um, wood knocks, a banshee which yeah. was pretty freaky. Yeah, was and then the finale was a tree peeker through, um, through opticals at night. Yeah, so let me, I'll set the stage on that. I, I was here with Rich, uh, myself and Daryl Collier. Uh, it was just the three of us and we were sitting in camp. It was a dark camp, which is what we like to do. Uh, no lights, uh, no fire, uh, just pitch black. And uh, Rich, who apparently has bionic eyes, was first to spot this. What did, what did you see? It was, it was two, uh, two green eyes which I initially thought were um, stars because it was up the ridge. Uh -huh. And the more I looked at the top of the trees and the more I looked at the sky and then looked at these two dots, they were obviously, it was obviously not um, uh, stars. Right. So I called out eyes. You two, I remember, were behind me looking looking up. Couldn't see a couldn't thing. See so I'm thinking I'm going mad at this point. And then you, <laughs> you both pulled out optics right. and you picked them up. So I, had, uh, I have a, a third gen uh, night vision unit, which... Uh, is pretty good at seeing things in the dark, but it does need some ambient light. So when I looked through my my night vision, I could see the 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 eye shine uh, that that Rich was seeing. I could only see it through my through my night vision. Uh, Daryl had our thermal unit, and he could see the thermal outline of what appeared to be a head coming around. So in, in this in this spate of just a few moments we had uh, a, a visual with you know natural eyesight we could see the creature through um, night optics uh, through IR optics and then we saw it again through through thermal all of us uh, seeing it in different ways uh, how long how long did this this escapade last it seemed like hours but probably <laughs> about 20 minutes yeah I think it's when you nipped off and looked up the slope with your your head torch. Yeah. I was looking at it through, through I can't remember, probably your optics, uh -huh. and the, the creature just dropped and we never saw it again. Yeah. I had to uh, go and relieve myself and uh, looking up the slope, 
I just I sort of glanced. I wasn't even uh, paying any attention to what I was doing. I had my red headlamp on, and just that motion um, made it. Uh, it was so so skittish. I think at that point it knew that we were looking at it. Um, I think the most the most memorable part that I have of, of that event is uh, when I was looking at it through the thermal, and you could actually see. Uh, on the on the on the left hand side of the tree as I was facing it, so the 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 animal's head was poking out, and on the opposite side, there were uh, little heat signatures of these little sort of like things creeping around that that really only could have been fingers. Uh, so that was a, a remarkable event. That was that was your first time in X. That was. Yeah. I um, I didn't think I'd surpassed my sights in in Alberta. I've sort of forgotten about that now because what, what I've experienced in X in the, over the last three trips right. just beyond anything I could have hoped for. So let's flash forward to uh, last year when you were here. Uh, you did something really interesting with Daryl that trip. Why don't you tell us about it? Yeah, last year Daryl and I were dropped off uh, two or three drainages away and over two days we walked back in uh, terra incognito, so places nobody had ever been to before, in the hope of flushing something. The first day, um, we had pretty much no sightings, nothing happened whatsoever. We camped that night. I possibly saw something, I'm still not convinced. It might have been something akin to a chimp's head looking at us. It could have been pareidolia. I'm still open um, to what that was. The following day, we moved off early hours, walked through the day. We were getting to a point where both of us completely knackered. Um, it was time to either camp where we were or push on for another two hours yeah. with head torches on and get back to Camp David. We didn't, we put up a tent, sat around, talked for a few hours, had something to eat. 10.15, we went to bed. I fell asleep within about 10 minutes, three wood knocks. Uh, and then the rest of the night, it was pretty much 10 minutes sleep every hour, um, 50 minutes I won't describe it as terror, but um, <laughs> being completely uncomfortable as we were being huffed at, growled at. Um, You're inside the tent when this is happening. We're inside the tent. And at one point, I was asleep. I, I was surprised I ever went to sleep that night, to be yeah. honest. I think at a point when my body just shut down. I was walking by Daryl, who said he'd just seen a figure walk up to the tent. We had, a, we had a red light outside. That figure walked in between the tent Jeez. and the light and then turned off at a tangent and wandered off. So we, we left it for another couple of hours, things happening every now and again, mouth pops, wood knock, growls, huffs. We got out, stood there in our underwear, because it was hot that night, with pistols in hand, looked <laughs> over the creek, and there's a pair of green eyes looking at us, cr crouching down in the undergrowth, both of us taunting it, shouting at it, nothing happened, it eventually just disappeared. I still can't remember how it disappeared, to be honest. That's... That's sort of unnerving. Yeah, yeah, because it was there, right. and then it wasn't. Yeah, I think I think at that point we, we were getting to the point where, where sleep was just was just calling. We went back to our tent, and then eventually Daryl had had, had enough. His his, his his light outside had the ability to turn from red light to white light. He turned it to white light at about four in the morning, five maybe four thirty, and then all everything stopped. Right, that's fascinating, and and I I know that you're, what you're talking about. I've been in here and. I mean, you guys had just had essentially two days of really strenuous uh, hiking through just open country. And um, sometimes you just become so tired that no matter what's happening around you, you, you just you just can't stay away. Um, so you guys came back to camp and, and, and related the story to us. And this was an area that, that, that I don't think anybody 
in our group that I can think of off the top of my head, certainly no one who was there that weekend had ever been to before, uh, on the other side of the valley, up a, up a drainage. And so uh, we, we quickly determined that we wanted to go back. I, did you want to go back or did you sort of agree to go back? No, I didn't. You know, do you know what we said? We were sat there and you were saying, I want one of you to take us back. Right. I didn't particularly want to go back. And I knew we went, we went back during the day and wrecked the place. But the, the nighttime trip, I wasn't keen. Um, and then Daryl said, oh, he was going to stay in camp. And I thought, well, this may never happen again. Right. So, uh, so I went back. Uh, and as you know, we were, we, again, hammocks up. We uh, spent the early evening chatting. We went to sleep with nothing happening. Um, and that was rather disappointing at that point because I thought we, I've just taken to a place where we had lots of action. Yeah, I, it's a hard walk to get over there. And I'm like, I came all the way over here and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay in a hammock all night and jack squat is, is happening. So then one, 153, that's, that's imprinted on my brain. I was asleep. Um, I, I wasn't sleeping particularly well when um, I heard rock displacement in the creek in front of us. I sat up and directly behind me was a human, a human-like, very loud whistle. So I shouted, I've been whistled at. No, nothing whatsoever. Really loudly, people, I've just been whistled at. At one point, Brian, Brandon and Matt woke up. Matt immediately whistled back and got a mouth pop. Yeah. from uh, from something to our left yeah yeah i uh i'm sorry i didn't immediately respond so it was it was myself it was you it was brandon lance our co-host and uh actually our other co-host uh, matt pruitt were, were all down there and, uh, but that was it that night that was all we had we had that one whistle mouth pop right no <laughs> <laughs> what else happened that night more mouth pops lots of hoofs yeah. i think is the best way to say it. Yep. in in the distance um I reckon three, four, maybe five, five apes yeah. around us all yeah. night. It was one of those rare instances where you really felt like they were all around you. And, and it's kind of hard to believe. And I'm sure some people are going to hear that and, and, and just not believe it. But uh, there were minimally three just based on the, where we were hearing the sounds from. Yeah. yeah, And very close. I think the... Whether they'd seen people before is probably open to the debate, but I, they were massively curious yeah. and they were coming in close. I mean, this, the thing that's worried me, and it has actually worried me for a year now, is that when I was lying in that hammock, there was something behind me just watching me. Yeah. Um, that's rather off-putting, to be honest. Yeah. They're kind of creepy, the way they just sit there and stare at you. Um so as we've been talking uh, over this trip and, and previous trips, you've done quite a bit of, of what I would call sort of uh, naturalist type activities. What are the what are some of the things you've done that that are related to um, you know uh, that you're birding or or other types of what we might describe as citizen science? Yeah, I'm 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 a member of an army. We have an army on a philological site in the in the British Army. Um, plenty of members who do bird watch. We've actually got special forces guys who who spent their time lying in ditches in the middle of Northern Ireland or the jungles of Belize and then got into bird watching by just watching things because they were bored. Yeah. So we do a number of things. We've been doing a project on Ascension Island in the uh, South Atlantic since 1989. So every nine months or so, we go back and study um, seabird colonies mm. uh, on Ascension. 
there was a massive there was an issue on Ascension Island that the seabirds have all moved onto outlying islands because feral cats had taken them all over the years. So we set up a project where we we well, the government employed um, New Zealanders to come and eradicate the cats, mm -hmm. and the seabirds have now moved back onto Ascension. So good news story, really. And you actually, there's a little area near where you live that you go and, and you're constantly sort of inventorying the animals there. Yeah, I, uh, I keep out of trouble, as I say to my wife. I, I, I don't think I have an expensive hobby. I could be a soccer fan. Well, I am, I am a soccer fan, but I could be paying um, £200 every weekend to go and watch my team up in the north of England. So, so I, um, I spend my time helping out on a, um, what was a gravel pit in the south of England has now been restored into a nature reserve. So I'm pretty much in the outdoors all the time. Right. I don't get the outdoors outdoors as it is here uh, and this is my fix every year yeah. we try to travel as a family to different places all over the world we've never been to i try to get as remote as possible but this is probably the most remote i've ever been and i've been to nepal i've been to africa i've been to australia but wherever i've been the, you could walk out within a few hours and find civilization here i'd probably have problems doing that yeah yeah so i'm, I'm curious to know since you're Relatively new. This is your third trip, so you're becoming a grizzled old hand. But uh, the first time you came in here, coming down that road, what, what were your impressions of this place? Did it, did it live up to expectation? Did it exceed expectation? Well, I mean, driving down the road, there were there were stick insects or walking sticks all over the windscreen. I'd probably only ever seen two in my life. And at one point, the windscreen wipers were going, and there was 30 or 40 going each time. <laughs> and there's this tunnel of vegetation. Now, I've, I've been on the roads in Africa. There's been some grim roads, but this tunnel of vegetation as we slip down a hill in low ratio to get to this um, place I'd never been to. My wife thought it was really odd. I was meeting a lot of Americans with guns on the, <laughs> that I'd only ever spoken to on the internet. And at that point, there was a bit of um, a banjo moment as I'm driving down yeah. this hill thinking, who am I meeting? Yeah. I think I know exactly the area, and I remember, I think I know exactly the spot you're thinking about, because I had a similar thought the first time I went down there, because it looked like I was about to fall into a bottomless crevasse. Uh, other, so you've spent time in here. Um, how does it, the, the wildlife, the, the diversity, what do you think? Could this, could this place uh, sustain a population of giant primates? Without a doubt. I've been in the jungle, and this is jungle. Yeah. In, in, in most respects, this is jungle. Um, if anybody's ever been into a jungle, you get claustrophobic very quickly. And actually, if you sit in certain places, you're miles from anywhere, mm -hmm. but you can get claustrophobic in the outdoors. Right. Not Nothing I've experienced really apart from places in Africa and Asia. Yeah, but that happens to you here. Yeah, very much so, yeah. Well, Rich, I really appreciate you uh, spending time talking to me today. And uh, thanks so much. And uh, here's hoping we have more adventures together down here in Area X. Happy days. <laughs> So I am here in the valley we call Area X, and I am joined by NAWAC investigator David Herring. Each of us has taken a different path to wind up in this place, and I'd like to get to know about yours. Thanks for joining us, Dave. Thank you, Brandon. So why don't you tell me a little bit about your background and what led to your interest in the outdoors? So it's sort of a circuitous path. When I was a younger child, uh, we lived in Northern California. We spent a good deal of time in the Sierras going up there. Uh, we'd fish, we'd camp, we'd hike. Um, this was in the early 70s, mid-70s, so Bigfoot was a hot topic. So that was that was always one of the, the, the boogeymen I had to deal with. I was always one of the younger kids in the, in the group of people that, that we would go with. 
and and that was when I was young. When I was 11 or 12, we moved to Texas and all of that stopped. So there, there wasn't much outdoors going on as I grew up the rest of the way until I got later in life and, and was an adult, um, changed jobs, opened our own business. We opened an insurance agency and that afforded me time to do things on my own. It afforded me to, um, the ability to do research on my own, um, and, and, and get back outdoors, which, which I realized I really missed and, and really loved. Along those same lines, one of the things I was researching, I thought, you know, you type in Bigfoot in, in, in a Google search. And one of the first things I found was, was a group called the Texas Bigfoot Research Center. And I thought, I got to check these guys out, you know, and, and, and I did. So I drove out to a conference, uh, with a friend of mine, I recruited a friend of mine to go out there with, with the intent of, of seeing a bunch of crazy people. Cause that's all I knew of, of, of the subject at the time. And I was sorely disappointed. There, there were, there were no tinfoil hats. There was, there might've been some crazy people in the audience, but, but the speakers, um, were all professional. We're all sane. We're all level-headed. And I remember distinctly coming home from that and my wife asking me, how, how was it? What, what'd you think of this? And, and I was kind of confused and she's, she was concerned that I didn't have a good time and it wasn't as fun as I thought it would be. But, uh, you know, I couldn't quite square those things that, that this, this topic that, you know, since I was a kid, I thought was just kind of a fun thing that, that there might actually be something to it. So I mulled this over for a few weeks and, and ended up finally going to, at this time, the Texas Bigfoot Research Center would, would have, would have, I guess, monthly or bi-monthly meetings. And, uh, that's one of the ways you'd become a member. So I went to a few of those meetings and met some of the people and, and, uh, thought this might be a worthwhile endeavor. And so I signed up. So at these meetings, when you were talking to these sober-minded scientific folks, did you have any indication or skepticism about their findings and the things that they had been presenting? Oh, of course. I mean, that's, kind of how I'm wired. I'm, I'm skeptical by nature. You know, one, one of the things that, uh, that I liked was they didn't accept any of that. They didn't accept any outlandish tales. They didn't accept anything that wasn't based in, in reason, you know? So in these meetings, they would give you the opportunity to, to speak about your experiences with ape related or not. Um, and what, what brought you to the subject and, and there'd be people in there that would have outlandish tales, you know, and, and that would kind of get shut down. And I really appreciated that. They, it was it was a no nonsense kind of thing. And that that led me to to want to be a part of it, you know. And how long ago was that? This would have been in 2007. So that was way back before the years when we started having summer operations in here. Mm-hmm. When did you actually start going into the field with the interest in looking for wood apes. Yeah. So I joined the group in 2007, spent a few years with them. Uh, we had young kids at the time. We were, we were building a business. So I essentially took a sabbatical and, and stepped away for a few years to focus on other things. But as, uh, as my free time availability of free time increased, I got back into it. This would have been in late 2014. And, uh, I guess, 2015 would have been the first summer that that I spent time in here. So before your first trip into Area X, what would you say your opinion was on the actual existence of wood apes? So that's a question uh, you've asked me before, and uh, 
generally it comes up at some point when when I'm here in the field with people. They they always want they want me to put a percentage on it. And so so the first thing I tell you is when I'm here on a team, the assumption is wood apes are here. You know, I'd be doing a disservice to you guys and and the group as a whole if if I came in with with a different agenda, you know, to to prove it to myself or something like that. So the assumption for me has to be that to be a good team member has to be that that they are here. Besides that, it's it's not a static thing for me. You know, there there there's times that that I think to myself, you know, if there was something to this, there it would have happened by now. You know, that's that weighs on me at at times. But then a week goes by, some time goes by and I think about it, you know, I I I I hear about what's going on in the valley when I'm not here. Um I hear accounts from people that I know and trust. You know, I come to the valley and, and I think there's there's no reason it couldn't be here. I mean, the habitat can certainly support it, you know, and then that brings me back on board. So I, it's not a static thing for me. It ebbs and it flows. And but I but regardless, I think it's a worthwhile endeavor. You know, just natural history is a, a fun thing. And I think it's important to to do these kind of things. I think skepticism is healthy. I think that you are doing the right thing in putting yourself in a position to see or experience these kinds of wood ape activities that we're describing and to essentially find out for yourself. I think that's good science. I think that's what good science is. I agree. I agree. Um, you know, I'm, I'm wired skeptically. So I, I probably, you know, everybody always asks a percentage. I, I won't be at a hundred percent until I see one probably, but that's, that's just the way I'm wired. That, that doesn't change the group or, or the group dynamic, but you got to come out here and see, and that's, that's the only way it's going to happen for me personally. But, but again, me personally is not the goal. The, the goal is, is what the group wants to accomplish. And so that's, that's the attitude I've got to be here with. So you've been coming here since 2015. How has your opinion changed since then? I'm less skeptical than I was in 2015. And I'll tell you, Brandon, it's not so much because of the things I've seen. I haven't spent a terrible amount of time in here. It's It's been a few weeks here and a few weeks there. But what erodes that skepticism for me is is knowing people and getting to know the members of the group and uh, and hearing their accounts, you know, and and seeing going to the places where where they've had things happen um, and seeing the valley itself. I mean, there, you know, I said this earlier. There's there's no reason wood apes can't be in here. I mean, that the habitat would support them. There's 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 nothing. Nothing prohibiting that. I told this story to you earlier in the week. Somebody once asked me after the first time in here in 2014, if if I thought, you know, a wood ape could possibly live in here. And my reply was real quick. I thought a T-Rex could live in here. It's just, it, it's that dense and it's that vast. And there's plenty of places for things to hide and, and stay hidden. So what are some of the more compelling events that you've witnessed since your time in here? Well, one of the ones that sticks out to me was was the first five minutes that I was here, and it was with you, actually. It was your first time in, too, I believe. Um, it was in January of 2015 we came in, and uh, I think we'd been in the valley out of the trucks maybe 10 minutes at the most, and a rock came through the trees and, and hit one of the nearby sheds. And I remember one of the guys said, whoa as it's coming through the trees and we all looked at each other and then a split second later was the impact. And that was real compelling to me. I mean, that just, 
rocks don't just fly around and, uh, and the timing of it. I mean, it was within 10 minutes of us getting out of the truck. So that was real compelling. Um, seeing the reaction of other members that have seen things, whether it was this week or, uh, or other times that's compelling to me, you know? So there's obviously something here that keeps you coming back every year. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I, I want these things to be here. I, I'm, I'm rooting for this, you know, but I've seen other people want, want it so bad that they fall off that slope. And I worry about that. So I'm going to, I'm going to be guarded and just keep coming back until, until I'm at that hundred percent mark. Our next guests are two brothers originally from Missouri who have been invaluable NAWAC members for quite a while. I was fortunate enough to spend a week with them in the field this year during Delta Team, and I'd like to introduce them to you now, Bud and Mark Melliker. Bud, do you mind telling us a little bit about yourself, including your background, education, and profession? Sure. I'm actually uh, in my 60s, and uh, I've had a background of loving nature and outdoors for our whole lives, my brother and I. My uh, dad got us both hunting and fishing early. That's probably what instilled our love for the outdoors. And always curious about nature and uh, wildlife. And that's kind of what brought us into this subject for me personally, into this subject. How about yourself, Mark? Can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, I'm one year younger than my brother, Bud. Like you said, we grew up in St. Louis area, and uh, I uh, ended up moving to Iowa City. Our mom and dad moved us there and went to uh, college in Iowa. Was two years in geology and ended up getting a business degree instead, and uh, I kind of regret that looking back because I really liked the uh, prospect of working in the field as a profession. As Bud said, we grew up walking around the Ozarks. My dad bought a uh, plot of land in the south, south central Missouri, and we spent most of our summers down there hiking and walking, and it's very similar to Area X. But anyway, we uh, really became outdoor naturalist-minded, and I think we were introduced to this subject early, probably MOMO. Uh, that's pretty much my background. I was in financial services my career, always, whenever I had a chance, got out in nature, fished a lot, hunted, so forth. So, Bud, I understand that you joined the NAWAC first out of the two of you. Can you tell me a little bit about what it was that captured your interest enough to move from being kind of a casual observer and reader of the subject to being involved directly in field research? I think it was 2014. Uh, I live in the Tulsa area right now, Oklahoma, and my brother lived in the Chicago area. And I saw that the NAWAC uh, was having their big conference in Fort Worth. And so we talked about it. And he actually ended up flying down. We drove down early in the morning on Saturday and went to their conference. And it was, we were kind of blown away. I didn't expect, you know, I expected maybe 20 people there. I didn't know what to expect. But it was very, very good. And uh, we were all excited. So when we got back, I don't know if I submitted, I don't think I submitted an application. The thing was, I was still working, wasn't retired. I mean, I thought there's just no way I'm going to be able to help these guys in any shape or form because I've only got limited vacation, blah, blah, blah. But I think after I retired, I sent an application in. So did Mark. So that was like May 2016. 
but my first uh, first year in the field was 2017. But anyway, that's kind of the short version of it. I've been following the subject online, of course, for years. Never really was thinking about joining any group. And I came across these guys, and they're within hours of me, pretty close. And I thought, wow, this sounds like the these guys are really scientifically oriented and uh, seem straightforward. And I was just really turned on by that. So that's that's how I ended up joining them. What I've been so impressed with, especially in the last few years, is just the wide array of skills that you both bring to this organization. And so I'd love to talk a little bit about that. I know you were both instrumental in building the cabin that we have on site at our particular location there in Area X now, which is just an invaluable resource. It's a remote, unforgiving area. So just having a roof over our heads is, is such a huge morale booster and really makes those weeks a lot more tolerable. And then beyond that, what I think the listeners would really be interested in hearing in is some of the new techniques and technologies that we're trying to put to use in the field. The NAWAC had helmed a long-term camera trap project for quite a while, not without its own hurdles and obstacles, but now we're trying some different things. So, Bud, could you tell the audience a little bit about what we're doing now and the work you've done with the new camera technology that we're deploying? When I joined, I joined as a camera person. So I was, of course, had my SLR and my lens and we were walking around the woods. And I soon realized after being down there the first time that it was kind of a futile attempt. And I know these guys uh, had all these camera trap setups prior. That was the main main goal was to get some photographic evidence. And uh, so now I think last year I talked about doing it again. I had purchased a couple trail cameras and then the organization purchased six this spring. And so... We had to try to figure out a way to camouflage these things. And one of the one of the issues, too, that we discussed is the fact that we think they have a sense of sensing IR light. So these IR flashes, infrared flashes that these cameras put off were probably being sensed by these animals somehow. That was a possibility. So I ended up disabling the flash on these cameras, just going with daytime photos only just because there was a, probably a risk that they were seeing these things and avoiding them. So the camouflage technique was what I got involved in a little bit. So ended up trying to use native bark and the native trees down there, a lot of shag bark hickories and the oaks and stuff, and hot gluing these pieces of bark to the cameras and then installing them on the trees and kind of brush them in. To some extent, they were successful. Some of them looked better than others. I think these animals are so wary and aware of their surroundings that they can spot these things. So this summer, we had them deployed throughout the field. We had eight total. There was a team just down there a week ago. They uh, checked all the cards, and there was a lot of deer, squirrels, black bear. We've had barred owls, turkeys, no apes. So one of the members here just recently in our discussions on our forum, uh, we're discussing putting up these cameras in a different array, sort of a picket line would be a generic way of saying that, and one area of the valley, which I think we're going to pursue, which I'm excited about. Because otherwise, it's just pretty much a crapshoot of trying to win a lottery and have one of these animals make a mistake and walk in front of one of these cameras. But anyway, that's sort of what I did this summer. It's been fun. 
Excellent. And I think listeners who are themselves field researchers might be interested to know how it is that you disabled those IR flashes. Because one of the other benefits that we found inadvertently is that it seems to be that the IR flashes are what is the primary pull of the power source. So we found that cameras that might be uh, running through their, eating through their battery source pretty quickly are actually not doing that. So we have these cameras out there that are taking thousands of photos over months of periods of time, but because there's no power going to those IR bulbs, we're finding that they're still at like 98, 99% capacity in terms of their power. So could you talk a little bit about how it is that you disabled those IR flashes? Well, you're, you're right about that. That's what I'm assuming about this power draw on these cameras. I mean, some of them were still at 100%. And so I think those IR flash bulbs are the main drain. But what I did was, of course, we have these new trail cameras. So I ended up opening the backs of them up and uh, getting to the wires. I actually desoldered them, the wires that went to the IR flash units from the circuit board. A couple of the other members had their own personal cameras. I think they cut them, which is just fine. I wanted to be able to reestablish them if we wanted the IR back. But, uh, yeah, that's what I did. I opened them up, desoldered the wires, <laughs> put them back together. Then I duct taped with camo duct tape all over the camera body and then went to gluing bark pieces, which was kind of a tedious process, onto these cameras with hot glue gun. It worked pretty good. So that was the process. Mark, one of the things that I was so impressed about was just your ability to manufacture and fabricate gear uh, almost as an engineer. I was really impressed with the shooter chair that you built, as well as the additions to your field vehicle. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, your process in terms of, of generating your own gear and any plans you might have for future gear and, and creating some of those things for field use in X? When I first joined NAWAC, Bud had already been in to X with his vehicle, his truck, and he was complaining bitterly about scrapes down the side, and it was two-wheel drive, and it was really not adequate for getting in and out of that area. So I had a Ford Expedition that was had 200,000 miles on it, and it was had some age on it, and I thought, you know what, I'm just going to equip that, and that will be our vehicle to get in and out. So I ended up building bumpers for it and raising it and putting you know, large AT tires on it, wench. Then I put a bunch of light bars on the top with a rack, just kind of an expedition-type vehicle. And that kind of started the whole thing. Then the shooter chair idea came from the mobile Overwatch that we decided to try. So actually bought a used Coleman 10 on eBay, cut the windows out, put the black plastic in, which you, I think you saw that down Delta. And, and then I would stand in there and say, well, how are we going to sit in this for eight hours comfortably? And, and if the opportunity arises, take a shot accurately. So that's when I got online and st started looking at shooting chair options and decided to purchase a couple of parts and modify it, put it together and, actually turned out to be kind of a nice, unique shooting chair, which, you know, I the first night we, Bud and I manned that Overwatch, I sat in it for, I think, probably six, eight hours straight, and it was very comfortable. So, so it's just, uh, it seems like if there's a need, I try to solve it by putting something together. If it's, if it's not a product you can just buy off the shelf, then you make it. That's kind of, that's kind of my mindset. So, 
Yeah, it's it's fun. I enjoy it. I was definitely highly impressed with all of those uh, various things that you had built and put together. And I think it opens up a lot of options for things that we can do in the future. I think most people, too, who have been involved in this research realize that, you know, we're constantly trying to find existing products to put to use, but not all of them are necessarily made for what it is that we're trying to do. So the fact that you have this background and this talent and skill set to generate those things yourself is pretty impressive. And I know we're all grateful for it. Now, Mark, I also understand that you've authored some books uh, related to the topic. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about that and where they might find those? My wife, Sharon, um, was 35-year elementary art school teacher. When she retired in 2015, she decided she wanted to write and illustrate children's books. So one night we were sitting around uh, after dinner and I suggested we write children's books with a Bigfoot in it. And she kind of looked at me funny, like, well, I don't know if that would be a good idea. And so anyway, long story short, we ended up writing a series of field guides, children's field guides, which uh, has features a Bigfoot family of four Bigfoot, and they take the kids through the forest and introduce them to their forest friends. And currently we have a tree guide a mammal guide, a bird guide, and a butterfly wildflower book that um, is available. Sharon did all the illustrations. They're really fun for kids. Kids seem to really enjoy reading them. And you can find those on the web at walkingwithbigfoot.com or on Amazon. We have uh, the books on Amazon also. So the series is called Walking with Bigfoot. And um, we do have a children's activity book that that we just came out with too that supplements that. So it's been fun. It's kind of a retirement activity. And uh, it does allow us to get to some of these Bigfoot shows, which are interesting to attend and be vendors there. Excellent. I think that goes a long way to facilitating the public outreach and education portion of this group's mission statement. And so, and it's also, to your point, uh, a good excuse for you and I to get together at some of these conferences uh, that have occurred around the country where we've been able to spend some time together, too. So hopefully a lot of listeners will go check those out, especially those who have young children who might be interested in the subject. So in closing, I know that we're wrapping up this particular summer operation. Very soon we'll be doing a members retreat where we're going to record another podcast episode that will be a recap of this particular year. But I'd like to ask you both, Bud, what would you like to see happen next year? Have you got any plans for next year's summer operations? Well, uh, I would actually like to see more cameras deployed uh, in possibly a different array and see if we can capture one of these things. And uh, that's what I'm looking forward to next year. I'm sure we'll be on a couple different teams throughout the summer. And how about yourself, Mark? Any big plans for next year? Anything you'd like to see happen or that you've got germinating on the brain right now? Uh, I do enjoy the thermal viewing at night. So I'm interested in using our thermals down there and, and seeing if we can capture. Like Bud, I've never seen an ape, but still very interested in a visual encounter and uh, hopefully we can get that done. But next year, I just hope to participate any way possible. I'd like to thank both of you so very much, not only for being a part of this episode, but for everything that you bring to the table. I think the group is benefiting significantly from both of your talents and insights and skills. And so uh, I hope to see that further into the future. And I can't wait to see you guys again in the field soon. I guess it will be at the retreat. So members will be hearing our conversations about Delta uh, sometime in the beginning of next year. 
So thank you guys so very much for being here and I uh, hope you both have an excellent day. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and uh, you have a great day. This next segment comprises Brian Brown, Brandon Lenz, and professional wildlife biologist Angelo Caparella having a discussion about citizen science and other things. This was recorded on-site in Area X while the three men were in the field together. So we've been out here now for, man, it's been a week. Uh, you're no stranger to going out into the woods and looking for all manner of animals, are you? You've been, to, you've been all over the world looking for, for birds and such. Well, not quite all over the world, but uh, many, many countries in South America, from really from Mexico to Argentina and Chile. So uh, looking for birds primarily, and uh, we've been fortunate enough to discover some new species. Oh, really? So uh, where did you where did where did that happen? Uh, that happened in Peru, where we discovered a new species of small parrot, uh, and also discovered a new species of barbet, and uh, helped confirm a new species of flycatcher. So when you go out and do that sort of work when you're when you're doing uh, these are bird surveys that you're going on or or looking are you, are you looking for birds specifically when you go out are you looking for new birds or are you trying to count up birds that you know are already there? We are intentionally visiting areas of western Amazonia uh, for the Peruvian work. Uh, South America is often called the bird continent because the diversity is so incredible, and we still don't have an adequate handle on the extent of species, their ranges, etc. So much of this is kind of doing the kind of basic collecting that Audubon would have done in North America at the time. And so we're trying to get enough knowledge both so that we understand the bird's biology, but also can do effective conservation of these birds as well. So when you go out on these expeditions, uh, what are they like? How many, uh, how many people, how long do they last, that sort of thing? What are the sort of the logistics and how do they look um, on the ground? Well, they're certainly quite challenging. Uh, there's not many institutions that do it. While I was at uh, uh, Louisiana State University, I got training in how it is done. And basically, you have, uh, oh, around six or seven biologists. You have a couple of uh, our chief guides that we've worked with for years. Uh, and then we hire local people wherever we go. And uh, we basically work our way back to promising areas that no one has been to before in terms of biologists. And then we encamp for usually about five or six weeks. We create a network of trails on which we put mist nets. We traverse these trails with uh, our shotguns. We do collecting of the whole body specimen. We also do multiple recordings. And we even carry liquid nitrogen back into these areas to do uh, tissue samples so that for genetic work. So it's uh, pretty complicated logistically trying to do all of this. And uh, part of my training as a grad student was to learn how to do that. So a lot of people might wonder why we need to collect specimens of birds that we already know exist, that we already have specimens of. What's the value? What value do you see as a biologist to collecting specimens of, of known birds, birds that we're already familiar with? Even for known birds, there's a lot we don't know about their basic biology. For example, diet. Uh, when you collect a specimen, you actually get the stomach with the contents, and we save those as well in ethanol for later analysis. When you have the uh, whole bird, there are things you can do with uh, taking a sample of feather or by just looking at the kind of variation from series that are all over 
the uh, range of the bird. Uh, if you ever look at um, any papers on basic bird biology, you'll often see that um, bird specimens were part of that. In fact, if you look at the beginning of any of your bird field guides, you'll also find that the bird artists aren't out there trying to paint birds that are flitting around in the canopy, the ones that you have trouble identifying too. They actually look at the specimens and compare those also to the living bird, just as Audubon did. Audubon blended both. He would learn the living bird, but he also needed the specimen in order to really see the details of the plumage and be able to do accurate kinds of paintings so that then those could be used by other people who want to do uh, non-lethal studies. What's the value of taking multiple specimens instead of just one? It's really important because every specimen is really a, a data point, if you, if you will. And there's a lot of variation there's variation uh, that's age and sex related in organisms. There's variation uh, in space. Uh, as you move around the range of an organism, you may end up with different subspecies, or if not quite that dramatic, you can see that local adaptations can arise based on the ecology of the area. Uh, there's also a variation in time, evolution. And so uh, there's even been seen in specimens collected 50 years apart, subtle shifts in the population, which reflects the fact that there may be changes in the environment in which they're adapting to or in terms of the frequency of certain genes. And so uh, one thing we've learned is that you never know, you can never anticipate what specimens can be used for in the future. Probably the classic case was the uh, old egg collections that had been taken that included peregrine falcon was instrumental in proving that the use of DDT was causing eggshell thinning. Uh, if they had not had a time series of eggs, the industry, of course, was claiming they had nothing to do with what was happening, but that was it was perfectly correlated with the introduction of DDT in the environment, and so it led to the banning uh, DDT and the recovery of a lot of our raptors. And I could go on and on with all the kinds of novel methods that we've learned. No one realized that we could actually extract DNA from bird specimens or anything else. Now they do it even from fossil organisms. And so you never know what a well-curated collection will be used for in the future. And so we're talking about two different types of... The type of specimen collection that the NAWAC has advocated for with regard to wood apes is to establish the animal to describe the animal for the first time. The, the kind of collection you're talking about is much more about uh, learning as much as you can about an animal, how it lives and how it's been in, involving in the environment. Those are really two different kinds of things, are they not? Um, yes, I suppose so. But you think of it this way, though. Part of the reason to get a specimen of a wood ape is to definitively demonstrate its reality to science. But Concurrent with that, collecting other aspects of wood ape biology, like hair samples, blood, feces, uh, vocalizations, uh, the kind of basic data you're, going, you're getting when you're out in the field, all of that will build up a complete natural history profile of the creature as well. And so archiving the kind of material is really critical as well in terms of coupling the specimen material that allow you to get at basic anatomy and morphology, things like that, as well as proving its existence. But that then uh, you don't need to, you, to continue collecting vast series or anything to get other kinds of information that you can get from uh, non-lethal sampling, non-lethal non sampling such as finding hair samples that you now know can be definitively linked. The key, though, in being able to do this additional work is you first got to have that basic specimen to know how to link it up to uh, the other kinds of smaller specimens, if you will, in terms of feces, blood, and hair, and vocalizations. And until you can 
match all of that up, uh, you really don't know exactly what you're working with for sure. So folks like Todd Disitel, he's he's asserted that an animal could be listed. It could be uh, proven to exist solely from DNA analysis uh, through blood or something like that. Uh, but I know we've had conversations about this. It's not quite so simple, you don't think. Technically, you certainly could define a new species based purely on DNA. But in practice, it's really frowned upon because you really need to have the whole organism. DNA is only a part of an organism. And even if you knew what the genes actually coded for, you still wouldn't be able to know the whole organism especially when you're dealing with so-called higher organisms where learned behavior is a big factor. So the genes are, are an important part of the picture, but they're not by any means, any stretch of imagination, all of the picture. And anyone who has you know, studied birds or mammals or anything else knows that if they, you just had the gene sequence, you would still be missing a lot <laughs> in terms of understanding the natural history, ecology, ethology, all of that kind of stuff. Right. However, my own personal view is that the DNA evidence has kind of gotten so muddled, the attempts to report on sampling of potential specimen material that uh, has yielded DNA has led to so much wide interpretation that I think we're going to have to get a DNA sample that's actually from a partial or whole body specimen before you actually know you've linked the two together. And even after that, uh, it turns out that analyzing DNA is more than just doing a straight sequence. Right. It's, it's a lot more complicated. In fact, if you look at the history of trying to figure out the relationships between human chimps and gorillas, uh, using molecular data, it took a decade to work out the proper statistical methods, the proper parts of the genome to work with, etc., and so uh, we really do need to have a uh, solid specimen material, and I'm talking about whole or key partial body, along with uh, the DNA. Um, otherwise, we're, we're going to be struggling. I used to think DNA itself might be enough, but again, I've been somewhat critical of some of the DNA approaches that have been taken, uh, particularly in terms of the interpretation, sometimes going to the wild end or not doing proper pre-screening of material. That at the, this point here, I don't think the scientific community is ever going to believe any DNA sequence in and of itself. Right. There were for many years, people thought in this community that DNA was sort of like the silver bullet. If we could just collect DNA, if we could just get some blood or some hair or something, then that would be it. We've proven the animals exists. But you're thinking at this point that the the waters have been so muddied that perhaps that's just not going to work. Right. I was of the same opinion that uh, if we could just get a very good uh, quality DNA sample uh, where we could, you know, get major parts of the genome sequence that that would be enough. But yes, I agree. The waters have been so sullied and the level of proof for something like this, it'd be one thing if I said I had a new species of flycatcher right. <laughs> or sparrow based on DNA. You know, there's a pretty small community that would really get upset about that. Right. It's another claiming that there's a North American great ape or, so, uh, or whatever this turns out to be. And so the, the standard of proof is going to be a lot, need to be a lot higher. And so at this point, while I'm, I, I think it's great to be going after uh, samples that ha could have DNA because those samples can also be used in other things such as stable isotope analysis with hair and the likes. There's still things we'll learn about the organism, 
But in terms of that key first question, definitively proving first that it exists, and second, trying to fit it into our understanding of the uh, primate group, at this point, it's going to take either a whole specimen or a significant part of a specimen. Even then, I think you're going to have some pushback uh, initially. And so you want to make sure that you've really thought it through how you're going to collect the specimen, store it, and then uh, involve the scientific community. Otherwise, we could have other fiascos develop right. in terms of the specimen material. So what do you mean by that? What sort of pushback? If, if you brought in significant portion, as you say, hands or, or some sort of identifiable body part, not just a piece of it, up to and including an entire body, what kind of pushback would you get? At that point, have you not presented something that is wholly unique? How, how could they push back on that, do you think? Well, I think in a couple of ways. One might be that, uh, first off, if the specimen isn't properly provenanced and then curated, then, uh, you know, people will const- could potentially construct all sorts of scenarios as to what was going on. I, I think eventually that would fall apart uh, as long as whatever is remaining of the specimen is in reasonably good shape. Uh, but there have been some controversies. The great Argus pheasant isn't really a species known only from a single feather, <laughs> uh, things like that. So that was not enough to really put to rest some of these kinds of discussions. Uh, I think the ramifications, the paradigm shift, uh, the mental challenge, in a sense, it will make to all of us in terms of thinking about a great ape other than ourselves roaming the North American continent means that... Um, this is going to have a huge uh, psychological impact on on a lot of factors, everything from the scientific community, which had been such a naysayer over all of these years, except for some of those brave souls of scientists who have uh, who have lent themselves to trying to encourage research is going to really, I think, um, show the merit of the citizen scientists model that is really continuing the fight to really demonstrate its existence. It's going to have huge conservation and economic impacts in terms of interpreting exactly what are we dealing with? Is this a threatened and endangered species, uh, either in part or all of its range? What does this mean about how we will now interact with the woods? Uh, I mean, I think it's kind of mind-blowing to think about what final definitive proof is going to indicate. And uh, again, scientifically, the thing I most want to know is where does this fit in into the clade, into the evolutionary tree of great apes? Uh, I think that's going to be uh, really mind-blowing as well, because there's still a lot of gaps in understanding the pathways by which we got to all of the great apes, including humans. And I think this is uh, going to be really, really fascinating. We were talking just the other day about what would happen if, when the the species established, we'll go from having, you know, a couple of dozen at any given point across the country, citizen naturalists going out into the woods looking for them to suddenly thousands of dedicated individuals in the field all the time. That's just mind-blowing. You had mentioned that the animal has to be properly curated in order for it to be established. Can you explain the steps that should be taken from getting the animal out of the woods and into the proper hands? Right. If we're certainly talking about uh, the whole animal or a significant portion, such as a hand, a foot, or a head, then uh, first and foremost, you want to try to get it into a preservation state as soon as possible. Uh, Getting it into a large freezer uh, initially, uh, ideally, if you can get it into a minus 80 freezer, that would be fantastic. Uh, And then that will buy you the time you need to reach out 
uh, to qualified scientists through the networks that uh, you've already established through very reputable people to bring in a team. In a way, it would be sort of like what happened uh, when they discovered these hominin remains in South Africa in that cave. Basically, they they realized they had these remains, but they didn't want to collect them until they had their methodological protocols intact. And then they invited a team of specialists. And then when they published their results, you had this magnificent series of papers dealing with all aspects of what they could extract from the specimen hall that they took out in a very methodical and uh, careful way. And so you want to kind of think ahead as what would you do once you have this? And it's it's great that this organization has done that thinking ahead because we may only get one really good shot at it, <laughs> pardon the pun, uh, in order to uh, indicate that this thing um, exists and then you're really going to have to carefully manage how uh, the scientific community gets engaged uh, so that there's no questions raised in terms of uh, any inappropriate handling of the material that could in any way particularly uh, cause people to start questioning what's going on. This is not the first time you've been in the woods looking for giant hairy bipeds in North America. How, how did you get involved in just sort of a, an interest in cryptozoology in general? And then I, I want to talk more about the specifically some of the expedition work that you've done in this area. But what brought you to this field of animals that aren't supposed to be there? I've always been interested in zoology, even as a five-year-old. And uh, as I was a teenager, I uh, got very interested in cryptozoology after reading Bernard Heuvelman's On the Track of Unknown Animals. I love the way he introduces that book, The Great Days of Zoology Are Not Gone. <laughs> and he, what he's talking about is that there's still a lot of organisms remaining to be discovered, and not just small soil microarthropods or whatever, although that's important, but actually significant species have yet to be discovered in particularly the bird and mammals to be found, as well as reptiles and fish and the like, and that some of these might be only of significance as specialists, but many of them can be of, of quite intriguing nature. I mean, everybody remembers the coelacanth of 1938. That really got attention across the world when this living fossil was rediscovered alive. And so Huvelman's book kind of got me into the field. Uh, Ivan Sanderson's book, A Bonneville Snowman Legend Come to Life, and then reading John Green's masterful series of works. And then just taking it off from there got me very interested in cryptozoology and uh, the Sasquatch phenomenon as a whole. And then over time, as I matured as a zoologist and, uh, and sort of kept up with what I could, when the International Society of Cryptozoology was established and Richard Greenwell was instrumental in doing that, I was one of the first members of that when I heard about it and uh, subsequently got involved with the society, having met Richard, uh, got involved uh peer-reviewing papers and also later on the board. Um, <clears throat> but during that time, I learned more about what Richard Greenwell and his son Darwin were doing to try to, or, to first select an area that could be worked. And they selected an area in Northern California in the Six Rivers National Forest, a wilderness area there in the Siskiyou Mountains. Um, he did a very thorough job to try to find a place that could be worked and he also had a philosophy of how to work it that I really liked because it had been affected, effective in our discovery of new bird species. You find a place that you think is likely to support uh, a reasonable population of these creatures, and you go and work it for some depth. You don't just wander in and out. You recognize that, in essence, you've got to attract this 
organism to you because you're just not going. The odds of stumbling on it is really remote. Patterson and Gimlin were incredibly fortunate, but they really had put in their time trying to find it. And they were prepared when they did. Uh, but to actually get the kind of information you want, you really had to approach it the way we'd been approaching finding new species of birds in, in Amazonia. All of these bird species, we really had to become part of the forest for a while so that the initially the first week, you know, things have already gotten scared of you. But then over time, they, if you're not too threatening seeming, they become used to you. And so that that really appealed to me. And then when I read his first field report for what they had accomplished uh, in that area in the 90s, I said, Richard, I'd like to be a part of this. And that's how it happened. So then you actually, you went on three expeditions. What what were those like? Uh, those were quite exciting, actually, um, in terms of seeing how difficult it was to really get back into the Siskiyou Wilderness area. Uh, one of the expeditions was to Bluff Creek, but the other two were to this site that he had chosen. It was those two that that were quite fascinating. And um, it was fun because you, we basically were just brainstorming, you know, what kind of equipment would be useful on a extremely limited budget, what kind of approaches would be useful, how would we engage with the creature if we should be able to get it there. And so it, it involved a lot of just thinking and experimenting and sometimes doing somewhat crazy things like playing a Tibetan bowl and stuff like that. I mean, we just didn't know what would work. Right. Uh, and uh, But trying to, within the extent that we could, you know, uh, get some evidence. The hope was that if we could get some evidence, and at that time we were really particularly hopeful to get some video evidence, we thought that if we could, that maybe that would leverage future funding that we could do more than that in terms of maybe even, who knows, actually tranquilizing one. We didn't really talk about collecting one at that time because we were still in the mindset that a good DNA sample would be sufficient. I later came to change my mind on that and thinking only a specimen will do, a whole, whole body or significant partial body specimen. It's mandatory if your objective is to scientifically prove this thing. But it was really great. Uh, Richard was a font of incredible information and had and an unbelievable memory of everything he'd read. He had talked to many people. He really kind of brought me into the field. I was a little reticent as a scientist, just from the sense of not knowing who to ally with, you know, who were reputable people. And he really helped guide me with that, who to stay away from, who to work with. And that was very valuable as I continued getting more and more involved in, into the, uh, the research end of things. What sort of factors made you decide to camp in this particular spot deep in the wilderness? Well, Richard really was the one who had done, he was trying to find the good area that was close to areas where Bigfoot sightings, Sasquatch sightings had been, but he also was researching the biology. He realized that apparently this had one of the highest bear densities in the whole Pacific Northwest, and a lot of people think that Sasquatches uh, are ecologically very tied or close to bears in terms of similar food resources. They may use them at different times of the day or whatnot. He uh, really looked into uh, the entire Klamath-Siskiyou ecoregion is one of the most biodiverse in the entire North America. Many people may not realize that, but it's incredibly biodiverse. He also researched, you know, what is an area that you could actually get into using, in our case, uh, horses and mules, uh, where we could deploy things without getting too disturbed by other people, but also made sense getting into without getting too logistically difficult. And so he really had thought this all through and worked it out. And because they had such success on that first expedition, 
Uh, although on that first expedition, they learned certain things such as how much food you really should have brought <laughs> and uh, uh, how difficult it really was to work that habitat and how uh, some of the equipment they had were really wasn't up to the environmental conditions. But they learned from each expedition, tried new things. And eventually, in 2005, I felt we had really hit our stride. Uh, but unfortunately, the kind of information we gathered through uh, our work there has yet to see the light of day for a whole host of reasons I won't get into, but that I hope will eventually see the light of day. Although at this point, uh, I think that working the kind of site where we are here in the Wachita's is logistically still challenging, but is a better way to go, uh, especially based on the portfolio of information that NAWAC has generated. Really, really important. Richard is no longer with us. So was that 2005 expedition, was, was that his, his last trip into the wilderness? Yes. Unfortunately, his cancer had resurfaced. We didn't fully know that because he didn't tell us. Uh, this was in some ways his, his last expedition out there. He actually passed away a couple of months later. A mm. uh, huge loss to cryptozoology in general, huge loss to his family, and a huge loss to his friends such as myself. So it kind of, for me personally, kind of stopped uh, any further exploits in the field just because I really didn't know who to kind of link up with. Uh, I wanted to kind of bring whatever I could to kind of help, any help I could provide to citizen scientist groups that were doing things. I thought maybe some of the work I'd done as a field biologist in remote areas in South America and birds, maybe I would bring in some perspectives that might be useful. Mm -hmm. So I'd been kind of sounding out over the years different groups to see if there's any way in which I could help play a role because I really want to see this thing confirmed and, and enter into the realm of science. You found us. We didn't find you. How did you stumble upon the North American Wood Ape Conservancy? I um, was trying to get kind of back into the field a bit after sort of mourning the loss of Richard and not really knowing were there any other scientists or groups or anybody out there who was doing the kind of work that I thought could yield actual results where I could potentially play a role. Uh, so I was sort of, you know, looking out there. Uh, and then I happened to hear about Beachfoot, uh, Beachfoot 14, and uh, heard that some key people like John Bendernagel likely be at these gatherings. And I thought, well, I've always wanted to go to Oregon anyway. There are a lot of birds I haven't seen there. And I thought that uh, this would be a nice way to combine me maybe meeting some of the uh, folks who were getting out at, at Beachfoot. So that was great in 2014. Then I had the invitation to go in 2015. And ironically, just before I went, I don't know how, just through some random Googling or something, I ran across uh, NAWAC's monograph. It's kind of summarizing their results to date. And as I read it, I first loved the layout. It was set as a scientific document. It starts off with uh, abstract and background information why it makes sense to think that there could be wood apes, as uh, is the preferred name for the population here at this area, trying to set up the, the scenario that this would be a good place to work and has proven itself to be, the philosophy of continually working the same area, being very both skeptical but not dismissive of evidence, and building up a, a case so that eventually you start learning more and more about the organism, leading up to the potential for actually... Uh, getting the kind of evidence you need. And they're straight out up front saying we need a specimen. Uh, we needed a group that was willing to put in the time and perseverance to get a specimen ultimately. 
And so, and it also looked to me like it was an, uh, a furtherance of some of the work that had that Richard had started in the Siskiyous in the in the late nineties, uh, and up to the point of his death in two thousand five. And so. I read that and was really wowed by that, and I heard that Bob and Kathy Strain were going to be giving a presentation at Beachfoot 15, so I knew that that would be a good time if I went there again, uh, part vacation and part attending the conference with my wife, that uh, this might be really kind of cool. Again, reading that monograph, meeting Bob and Kathy, they they were real down-to-earth, good people to talk with. I I also had stumbled across Kathy's book uh, on her anthropological research with the phenomenon. And uh, and then I reached out to Alton Higgins. Turned out we had some similar background, uh, mutual friends. We just connected on so many levels. And then he was very uh, forthcoming with inviting me to come to the annual meeting. Uh, and I got to meet some of the other great people there. When I realized that you had uh, retired wildlife biologists involved and, and just learn more in depth as to how you were approaching, I thought, well, boy, this is a group for me. And I, I wanted to contribute whatever I could to help uh, with what was already an incredible operation that was moving forward. And so that's led to me now being interviewed here in the middle of the uh, <laughs> Watch It Us. You know, it's, it's fascinating to me listening when you spoke to our, our annual retreat and, and just having the week here with you uh, this week, uh, the, the work you were doing with Richard, there were so many parallels, not just in the way that you were approaching the work, but also sort of the the logical stops you were making along the way. And it seems like, like we... The, the group that that we're all part of was sort of like going along that same path and having some of the same thoughts. They may know a lot of lined up perfectly, but we all sort of ended up in the same spot eventually. Do you think that that Richard would have ended up there as well? Or do you think that he would have taken a different path? I mean, it's probably impossible for you to say, but but do you feel that that evolution of thought would have continued with, with him? I think that that's very likely. Uh, certainly, as you say, it was remarkable. I, I know he would have been very impressed with the extreme dedication, uh, the care, uh, the methodical, persevering way in which the group was doing its work, its concentration on the area to really get to learn the area so that you could work effectively within it, uh, the way you comported yourself and just everything about you. He, I think he would have uh, really loved that. As to whether he would like to see an actual shooting with specimen, I can't really say. Uh, we we never really discussed that uh, because we were still in the mindset at that time of thinking that a DNA sample would be sufficient, uh, and uh, at least in, ter- in terms of definitively proving the existence of the of the organism. And then we thought the next step would actually be after having a DNA sample from hair or some qual- high quality would be actually capturing a live individual, maybe ha- doing eth- uh, uh, Primatological studies like Jane Goodall had done or uh, some of the others people who have worked with primates. We kind of thought we would go from DNA proving it and then uh, to the living animal being studied both in life as well as maybe even captured in some way. So we never really got to the point as to when are we in its essence going to be forced to kill one in order to get this this uh, field to the point of maturity where the whole scientific community recognizes it exists and we can continue the road to both going back and mining the old data that has been carefully assembled, uh, which will be incredibly value that, valuable at that point to the entire scientific community, but also move forward in understanding more about, I mean, there's so many questions that will have to be answered after that. Personally, one of the things that most fascinates me is I was also 
originally while I was coming along saying that, uh, you know, I was nearing 100% certainty that there really was an unknown creature behind these these uh, sightings and the evidence that had been forthcoming, I was very, very hesitant to think that they existed outside the Pacific Northwest. Yeah. Uh, and yet I was struggling, as I'd had many discussions with Richard, well, is there something about the body of evidence outside the Pacific Northwest that is demonstrably different from that in the Pacific Northwest? Because if there isn't, <laughs> then either you have to think all of the evidence is not very uh, compelling or that this is reminis- this is indicative of an organism that lives across a lot of areas of North America. And uh, so I was wrestling with all of that and starting to start thinking, well, you know, there may be these foci of other places where the amount of habitat exists that could support a breeding, sustainable population, et cetera. Uh, and so... Again, reading the monograph made me realize that, wow, this might be another place that could really have a self-sustaining population of these creatures. And and I think the evidence has gotten me to the point, particularly after my uh, being here, that, yeah, this is a place to work. Uh, this is really a place that's that's uh, deserving of the kind of focused uh, impact. And and I think that if you actually get a specimen here, in a way, that would be better than getting one in the Pacific Northwest, because in a shot, it would indicate uh, that this is a more wide-ranging species than we thought, assuming it is the same species, which I think is the most parsimonious explanation. And therefore, there is justification for thinking that this may be a more widely distributed, uh, self-sustaining organism occupying multiple habitat areas which in a way is even more mind-blowing than just thinking that there is a relictual population of North American great ape in just the Pacific Northwest. So so the mind just starts uh, being blown in terms of all the ramifications of the work that you're doing here over and above, uh, hopefully getting to a specimen, what it means in general for the phenomenon as a whole. So we've walked miles and miles throughout these mountains over the past week. Do you have any reason to believe that this area couldn't sustain an animal like this? No, not at all. Just driving down here for the first time to really see the area. Uh, Alton Higgins gave me a great tour, getting to know more about the nature of the evidence you've been assembling, seeing the habitat. Yeah, I mean, the more I see it, the more I see certain really nice parallels with the Siskiyous in terms of low density of people. People tend to not really go into the wilderness and spend long periods of time. They tend to stay with their noisy (laughs) equipment and everything in just easily accessible areas. There's plenty of places for a a population to roam and stay out of direct conflict with humans, but yet still be studyable through the methods that you're producing. So, yeah, the more I see the area in the field, as well as just looking through all the maps and learning more about the incredible endemism in this area, endemic herps, endemic organisms of all types. I mean, this area is rich biologically and really hasn't been as well worked biologically as you might think for something that is not in the Pacific Northwest. Um, A lot of people just don't realize that there's still so much to learn about literally our own backyard Mm -hmm. here in North America. And while probably the new bird species to be discovered will primarily be in places like South America and the Congo and Southeast Asia, there's still a lot to be learned about biodiversity, even large organisms here in North America. It's it's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's funny you say that. We're sitting in mountains that most people, even who live in the state, might not even know exist. Um, there was a term you used the other day 
that that I had not heard before, admittedly, that was the, the, sort of describing all of the sort of indicators that are all pointing in one direction. Can you talk a little bit about that concept? There's a term called consilience uh, that's a really neat term to think about. Uh, E.O. Wilson, the great naturalist and biologist, wrote a book entitled Consilience, and he talked about how in most kinds of work, as you're trying to understand a particular phenomenon, one way to think about getting to the heart of the matter in a scientific sense is starting to look at how different approaches towards evidence starts pointing to the same conclusion. You reach a consilience where various lines of evidence take you to that nexus point. And thinking about using that thought process of consilience to get to the inner truth of a particular phenomenon is a kind of a nice way, I think, of thinking of a lot of cryptozoological phenomena. You start looking at what do the Native Americans know about this? What have their folklore and knowledge of the area talked about? Uh, you bring in understanding of the ecology of the entire area in terms of thinking about could it actually support whatever, crypt, whatever cryptid you're talking about. Just following the lines of evidence from different viewpoints and seeing if it all sort of makes sense and points towards something being real. Uh, looking at the uh, biogeographic and historical biogeographic knowledge of a particular area uh, giving the history of the Wachita orogeny, the, the building of the mountains and how it fits in the overall history of North American development of the topography of North America and its flora and fauna, pulling it all together and is seeing if it points in a consistent way towards a, a single explanation, uh, that's consilience. And I think we're reaching consilience towards another number of cryptozoological phenomena, including uh, the North America's great ape, to use John Bindernagel's term. So do you think a reasonable person would look at the body of evidence around the, the great ape here in North America and, and come to the conclusion that there may be something there? Obviously, you can't use this all by itself to establish and prove that it's there. But would a reasonable person, a reasonable scientist look at the evidence and conclude that there could very well be something there? I think so. And that certainly led me to the point of being interested enough to commit time and resources to the furthering of the understanding of the phenomenon. Yes, I think at this point, it's unreasonable to not accept that there's a reality out there. We obviously don't know its precise identity, etc. But as uh, John Bindernagel developed in his second book, which I really urge people to read, Science is no longer, or scientists are no longer acting in a scientifically responsible way. They've moved from skepticism to dismissiveness. Mm -hmm. They actually haven't even weighed the evidence because they don't think there's any credible evidence to weigh because there can't be a phenomenon to be explained that could be a new creature unknown to science. So, yeah, I think at this point, much of the scientific community is being unreasonable in terms of dismissing and not helping further an approach to try to really get at the heart of this matter. It's frustrating. We talked about this the other night, but what's frustrating to me about it is if they would just crack open their minds a tiny bit. There, there are so many things that, well, for example, you're, you're a biologist. You're very much concerned about environment and, and, and habitat for all kinds of animals. Um, when I've spoken to David Mijazuski from the National Wildlife Federation, they talk about these sort of like headline animals. That's not the term he used, but these like these big guys you put on stamps, you know, that protect large. Fr like, there's reasons for these guys to invest even a little bit of thought or or attention to the subject, but they just they just write it off. They don't even see any of that at all. Why 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 
why? Why do you think that is? That's a big question, but I'm I, I'm just asking. Yeah, it's a complicated question in that people who don't know the reality of work in academia, uh, the kinds of pressures that scientists face with uh, within their own community, the kinds of retaliation, I guess is not too strong a word, uh, that your career can suffer if you get involved as a scientist. Mm-hmm. I've had people ask, you know, if the thought that there's a, a gr- undiscovered great ape species in North America, you'd think every zoologist, every primatologist would be rushing out to try to study it. Well, it's, it, it, in terms of career-based ornithologists have to earn a living and support a family, it's actually a lot more complicated than that. Uh, and to their credit, some have tried to do it in a bold way and have suffered some of the consequences of that. Um, and so we really have gotten to where we are dependent on citizen scientists really uh, taking on the science. The nice thing about science is anyone can do it. And you don't have to be a, a Ph.D. trained scientist in order to work your way through it. In fact, if you look at the way science developed, it was really often either wealthy individuals who had the time and money to do it or even people like Audubon, who was living hand to mouth, who would basically do science, uh, science anyone can do. And uh, there are fields of science such as ornithology and astronomy where the citizen scientist is is contributing hugely to the field. Mm-hmm. And I like to see personally in cryptozoology an alliance between the citizen scientist and the scientist just because the one thing scientists can do is kind of help you couch the evidence and and enter into this if you want it to be scientifically demonstrable kind of kind of help you know i mean we learn the career and how to kind of help the citizen scientists present their data and formats that uh, will be acceptable to scientists uh, maybe even in terms of methods that for proper curation of material and the like can help with that i think a an alliance between the two groups is in a in a broad sense is is the way to go uh, i'm very used to that because in ornithology we're very used to working with uh, passionate individuals who may not have the degree, but have taught themselves by and interacted with scientists not only how to do science, but how to do ornithological research. There's a huge history of that in ornithology, probably more so than in some other uh, disciplines. And so we're very comfortable as ornithologists working with others to uh, accomplish these kinds of goals. Okay. I really subscribe to John Bitternagel's philosophy that it's going to take a while for science to catch up with what everyone in the field is doing. But that doesn't mean we can't be doing it now because all of that data properly gathered and curated and maintained and made available People are going to flock to that once you actually have the specimen. So to me, I see, see you on two parallel tracks. One is to actually get a specimen so that you can bring it in the realm of science, figure out where it fits in our evolutionary tree. But then the real work begins in terms of fully understanding the natural history of the organisms in both the local and the regional context. Uh, because we know that this population to be self-sustaining has to have complex interactions among individuals. Then you want to know how does it interconnect with others because presumably you do have dispersing individuals that will be flowing genes to other populations. Where are those centers? Mm-hmm. I mean, the field is wide open. There's going to be a lot to do. I know some people fear that, well, you know, the excitement will be gone once you have your first specimen. I think the excitement will just begin because there's so much basic information to be gathered some of which we can now will now be able to put into some context thanks to the dedication of many in these and other groups but also it'll open the door to to finally getting the kind of marshalling the actual resources we need 
to take advantage of all the technological breakthroughs that, let's face it, are, are expensive mm-hmm. and that can be deployed at a scale uh, and at a level that is just going to be going on and on. I mean, I want to see books coming out about all aspects of uh, the North American great apes, ecology, its behavior, its conservation, everything. I mean, it's just going to be exciting once that's done. And getting that specimen will be the linchpin for really moving that further. But the data you're getting in parallel now, which will enable you not only to get that specimen, but also to put it into context ecologically and in a natural history sense is, is really key. And I know how much you love this region and love these mountains and would like to see them manage in a proper way. Uh, this will be a fantastic leverage point yeah. to do that. You know, you, you say that the, the real work begins after the, the specimen, after the establishment of the, of the animal. And I think in a lot of ways that's true because uh, they're so incredibly furtive. They're so incredibly difficult to, to observe. So the, I think two things. I think, first of all, yeah, and I think that we don't really appreciate how hard it's going to be to try to study a real animal that, that's already been established versus this sort of mythological unicorn type thing that we're dealing with today because that's what most people are thinking. Uh, but also, it seems to me that trying to trying to at least begin the groundwork for some of the methodology you would use to be able to collect these data about them seems to be critically important because if if you're a primate expert in orangutans or gorillas there's there's no way to know what percentage of your sort of experience is going to be applicable here do you think that's true oh very much definitely and they'll continue to be a huge role for citizen scientists. Again, I always think back to my bird experiences. If you look at all the citizen scientists that help with trying to survey marbled murrelets or uh, northern spotted owls, if you look at citizen scientists who've been involved in this ongoing mystery of the ivory-billed woodpecker, you'll just see the role will just expand. Uh, so no one should feel a letdown, as I think might inevitably some might when the first specimen is captured, I say that's going to open the door for all sorts of people because you're going to need an army of researchers, uh, an army of people, and there just aren't enough PhD-type scientists that will, will even be able to do it. So the opportunities for citizen science to be an incredible research arm of the scientific community is huge and of the conservation community as well. Uh, it just in the same way as our thought, uh, where we still <laughs> debated whether we rediscovered the ivory bill in the Cache River Basin of Arkansas, it leveraged so much conservation money to start doing the things we needed right. to do to protect and restore the great southern swamplands that uh, so many people love. Uh, all of this will come forth. I think it'll be a golden age of research on North America's great ape. That trigger point is going to be getting the specimen, but I don't want you to see that as your sole objective. Oh, right. yeah. And obviously, you don't see that as your sole objective. Well, I, I want to thank you uh, for two things, uh, Angela. I want to thank you for sitting down with Brandon and I and having this conversation. But I also want to thank you for doing that Google search or, or how, whatever it is that, that led you to the monograph. Because I cannot describe to you how great it is to have you here, to have your expertise here, to have your insight here. Uh, the entire group is just thrilled to have you a part of this work. So thank you so much for coming out and thank you so much for, for having this conversation with us today. Well, thank you so much. I feel honored uh, to play a small role and hopefully an evolving role 
uh, in all that you're doing. I, I just admire the dedication, the the commitment. Uh, it, it's really remarkable and uh, really puts a lot of professional scientists to shame uh, to not be doing what you all are doing. But you're doing it and you're doing science. So don't feel discouraged because of what other scientists do. Think about science itself and think about the organism that you want to protect it. You want to understand it. Think about that if you ever get discouraged about what individual scientists are doing in a dismissive way. Those howls you just heard were obtained in Area X in September of 2018. I was there at the time and heard them from close range. They immediately struck me as too deep of a call for a coyote to produce. Coyotes yip and howl at a much higher pitch than the animal heard in the recording. To me, they sounded more like wolves. To get further clarification, and possibly an answer to the mystery, I sent the audio file around to a few different wolf biologists around the continent. The responses I received were surprising. The howls were shown to be well within the vocal range of red wolves. What's special about that, and potentially a huge discovery, is red wolves haven't been seen in the Wachita Mountains since 1944. That is a 74-year gap between the recording and when they were thought to have disappeared from the area completely. The remaining population of wild red wolves is believed to be somewhere around 20 to 30 animals, all of them in North Carolina. Since I heard those howls a year ago, I've taken a special interest in red wolves. To find them still persisting in the wild without human assistance would be quite remarkable. I've written an article about this potential discovery showing how the vocal range of our recording compares to other canids. The results are quite compelling. The article can be found at our website at woodape.org. Joining me now for further analysis is the executive director of the Red Wolf Coalition, Kim Wheeler. Kim, I sincerely appreciate you taking the time to speak with me tonight. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. I appreciate you wanting to uh, talk about the Red Wolf. Before we dive into that audio file, I would like to learn a little bit more about your background and the path that you took that led to you being a leading voice for red wolf conservation. What led to your initial interest in red wolves? I, in fifth grade, had a teacher that we were just supposed to spend one semester talking about Native Americans. And the classroom um, 
we were so enthralled with everything we were learning that she extended it to an entire year. And you can't learn about Native American culture without realizing that animals are a huge part of their customs and their culture. And the wolf and the bear stood out for me. So that sort of piqued my interest in wolves and always was interested in wolves. And um, my background is actually a sales and marketing um degree. And that's what I did um, up until um, 2005. And that's when I came to work with the Red Wolf Coalition. I actually did some volunteer work at the International Wolf Center in Ely, Minnesota, and had one of those aha moments, like the universe was telling me, you need to be doing something with wolves. I know that sounds a little far-fetched and out there, but that was my moment. I came back to North Carolina and learned about the red wolf, had no idea we even had red wolves. And I started volunteering with the Red Wolf Coalition. Then I was on the board. And then the board asked me if I would consider taking the executive director position. And um, I commuted back and forth from Raleigh till my daughter graduated from high school and then um, moved here permanently, have been in this job for 14 years. So in my 14 years, I've seen the ebbs and flows of what a conservation program looks like, Um, the good, the bad and the ugly, Um, challenging days. Some days you want to lay the keys on the desk and find somebody younger. Um, But most days um, that feeling passes and I I look every day to try to do something to help the Red Wolf, be it through our social media, through interviews like this, um, talking with students, no matter what, just having that opportunity to tell the Red Wolf story is really, really important. So you obviously have quite the passion for conservation then. I do. I think... um, One of my goals when I speak to people or I do an interview is not necessarily to make them love wolves, but I want them to understand the red wolf is an amazing story of conservation. And there are a lot of animals out there that have amazing stories. And I hope that I... I can bring out those feelings in people of wanting to help or be part of something bigger, whatever that is. You know, if your passion are, is snakes or turtles or fish or butterflies, I hope when you walk away from a presentation of mine, you'll you'll find that you learned a lot about the red wolf, but that maybe you step back and go, you know what, there are things that I can do and and let me go and find out how I can help. So without going into your absolutely full presentation. Can you give me sort of a synopsis about the red wolves and their history leading up to now? The red wolf is an endangered species. Um, It was first reintroduced back into North Carolina in 1987. Um, We started with eight wolves. Prior to that, the red wolf was an eastern canid. The remaining population was found between Texas and Louisiana. There were about 17 animals that they determined were red wolves, red wolves based on morphological data, which is um, head size, ear size, body size. This was really before genetic um, testing. So we did not have that sort of information at the beginning. Those wolves were pulled out of the wild and went to 
um, Point Defiant Zoo in Tacoma, Washington. And from there, um, the population got healthy. And then the Fish and Wildlife started thinking about a reintroduction program. And when you look at the Southeast, you know, there, there seems like there's a lot of places to reintroduce wolves, but there really is not. And certainly now, with the prevalence of coyotes on the landscape all the way across our United States. Um, we did not have that challenge back in 1987, but by 1999, they definitely were beginning to see an influx of coyotes here in North Carolina and into the Red Wolf recovery area. So the Red Wolf is a, is a story of resilience, not just for the animals themselves, but for the field staff that took on that challenge to reintroduce a top predator, a canid had never been reintroduced before and they were looking at using captive stock and so then that bears the question is will these animals that come out of captivity know how to act in the wild and find their own food and 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 be, sort of become wild again so there was certainly a process they went through to pick good candidates for release and as i mentioned they did that in 1987 and um paws hit the ground and um you know here we are 30 some years later um, some of those original wolves made it the first year some did not but the second year the first group of puppies were born, and, and so was the Red Wolf Recovery Program in North Carolina. So leading up to today, how healthy is the Red Wolf population? So the animals themselves are healthy. Um, the problem is in the last, probably since 2012, the population has been in decline. Um, in 2012, we lost 10% of the population due to gunshot mortality. As I mentioned, we have coyotes here on the Albemarle Peninsula and in the recovery area. And um, it is difficult to tell the difference between a red wolf and a coyote. Um, a red wolf that's born in the spring is about the size of a coyote during hunting season, which runs October through December. So we recognize that it can be difficult to tell the difference. But we also know that some of those deaths were intentional um, in the manner in which the wolf was found. So, you know, some wolves, you know, a carcass is over here and a, tra and a tracking collar that they normally would wear around their neck is in a different location. Certainly that in 2012 began to add to the decline of the population. In 2005, when I came on, the population was at its height at about 130, and we currently have fewer than 15 wolves on the landscape. There have been a lot of challenges with local landowners here that we never really encountered some of those issues in the history of the program, but I would say the last five years, um, there's local landowners have been very vocal about not wanting wolves on their property. So today I, I feel like the program is almost at its beginning again. You know, the fish and wildlife as the responsible party is going to have to figure out a way to work with landowners to figure out what it will take for landowners to allow wolves on their property. Um, and it's going to be hard work, but more than anything, the fish and wildlife has been doing this for 30 plus years. They know what to do. They really have the advantage of knowing all the things that worked and all the things that didn't work and look at those things that didn't work and be able to step back and say, how can we change this? How do we make this better? Or we really shouldn't try that ever again. So even though the program is in decline, 
Um, and it does give us all pause for grave concern. I do believe that the fish and wildlife knows what to do. I live in Minnesota and I spend a lot of time hunting in northern Minnesota where gray wolves have proliferated over the past 10, 15 years thanks to a protection status by the Fish and Wildlife. And it's very controversial here as well, especially with landowners, as you say, and with hunters especially. So you and I connected after I sent the audio file of those howls that we recorded in 2018 And I I sent them around to different Red Wolf experts, such as yourself, and luckily you were kind enough to give a stranger like me a chance, and you Uh listened to the file yourself. You said that the howls did sound like Red Wolf howls that you have heard before, but you can not identify a wolf based on its howl alone. So coyotes kind of have a yippy howl to them. And so these did not have that. They had more of a wolf sounding howl. So what they are, I don't know. That's that's genetic testing to be able to determine that. But you you actually have experience in being in close quarters with red wolves and you've heard their howls in person, correct? I have. We did the howlings at Alligator River for five years and um I've been the caretaker of red wolves here locally since 2012. What's unique about the ones that we were talking about is that they were recorded in deep southeast Oklahoma where gray wolves definitely do not range. And the last time red wolves were found in that area, which is in the Wachita Mountain ecoregion, was in 1944. That would mean that there is an 80-year span in between when they were last found and when these files were recorded. And if those are indeed red wolves, which I think they very well might be, I think that's pretty incredible. It is. And so um, right now the Fish and Wildlife is undertaking um, um, a research project looking at red wolves in southeast Louisiana um, because there are some very interesting looking canids. So what can actually happen is it could be that in these animals, there could be some red wolf ancestry in these animals that you recorded. Given that there could be some red wolf history in them, then these red wolf genes as animals reproduce are reproducing. And so that could certainly be affecting their how. If they are a hybrid, say a coyote bred with something that howls different than a coyote, it could be that too. So it's really kind of an unknown. It's it's That's what I always find interesting about pictures and audio files that I get. Sometimes I can tell right off the bat. And then other times it sounds very interesting. There's, there's a lot going on in Texas and Louisiana right now with a lot of big canids. Um, I'm hoping that the Fish and Wildlife will also want to do some research at the the uh, the animals on Galveston Island in Texas. It would be pretty amazing to think that some red wolf genes have survived all these years, um, either in Oklahoma or Texas or Louisiana. If there are indeed remaining red wolves in Oklahoma, what can we do to further our knowledge about them and possibly obtain more evidence? The leader on that would be the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And so, you know, you would connect with them, and then they would request, number one, genetic material, whether that's scat 
or fur, something that has genetic material from those animals. And then that would go to the Fish and Wildlife, and then they would send that to a genetics lab to have it tested. Certainly documenting via pictures are great. I don't think audiophiles would get them interested, but certainly some pictures of, of these canids. That's That was some of the first things that I saw coming out of Texas were some pictures of some really big canids that had red wolf ears, body size, muzzle. They were not just coyotes that were bigger than average. There was definitely something very wolf-like about them. And then one individual happened to find an animal that was deceased. So he was able to get some genetic material and that sort of started the process on that. And, um, I'm not sure what they've done in Louisiana. I know they've gotten some genetic material. So at that point, you kind of have to step back and let science do the work. It's a slow process. There are a handful of examples of mammals that have previously thought to have gone extinct, only to be rediscovered decades later. And I'm sincerely hoping now that the red wolf, at least west of North Carolina is also going to fall under that category. Because after I've heard these howls and I've started to dive into it a little more and learn more about the red wolf and their population at the moment and the conservation of them, I've taken a vested interest. So I'm certainly going to keep going back to that area where those howls were recorded and try to obtain more evidence. The red wolf story is just fascinating to me. I mean, there's so many aspects of it. There have been challenges and the fish and wildlife has been able to step back and come back with solutions. That's why I said they know how to do this. So when these wolves were first reintroduced, we didn't have any idea that hybridization with coyotes would become a problem. And so then, you know, the late 1990s, all of a sudden they find that red wolves and coyotes are breeding, and that's what a hybrid event is. And so they brought some scientists together, came up with this adaptive management plan, which in its basic form calls for the sterilization of coyotes. Um, so that's one way to help stabilize a population. And because coyotes like wolves will defend their territory, they will kick out any transient animals. So it really encompasses a lot of positives that are needed. And so we're hoping here in the near future that that adaptive management is something that the fish and wildlife will resume. Where can people go if they want to find more information about the Red Wolf Coalition, Kim? Redwolves.com. We also have um, a pretty active um, Facebook page, Red Wolf Coalition. Um, we are very interactive on our Facebook page. We put stuff out. We answer questions. People can always call here. Um, I think the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service Red Wolf Recovery Program also has information on their website. Excellent. And if anybody out there does have evidence of red wolves remaining west of North Carolina, would you be interested in hearing or seeing about that evidence? Yes. My email address is kwheeler at redwolves.com. Um, I look at lots of pictures every week. Again, when I lay my head down at, at night, I just hope I've done something good for the wolf and not something that makes me feel good, but that is a positive step forward for these amazing creatures. Thank you so much for joining us here. It's been an absolute pleasure. You're welcome.
Thank you. Well, that about wraps it up, folks. I hope that you are as inspired as I am by the members of the group who are conducting citizen science. That's essentially what I've been doing for the last 15 years or so, pursuing this subject. And I've been inspired by other citizen scientists like Jane Goodall and like Diane Fossey. So if you're interested in this subject and pursuing it, get out there and do your best. Who knows? You might just discover an exoplanet or a wood ape. And if you are interested in helping the NAWAC discover the wood ape, please visit our website at woodape.org. And I would also like to ask all of you to please rate and review our podcast wherever you receive your podcast. It helps us out tremendously. Our next episode is entitled, Yay Though I Walk Through the Valley of the Wood Ape. Myself, Brian Brown, and a couple of other citizen scientists in the NAWAC recently spent a very interesting week in Area X. This episode is all about that, so stay tuned. Microphone Yetis were harmed during the recording of this podcast.